Wiley Audio is pleased to present The Alchemy of Finance, Reading the Mind of the Market by George Soros. Your reader is Grover Gardner. Introduction In a very real sense, this book is my life's work. It touches on many of my most abiding interests, and it brings together the two main strands in my intellectual development, one abstract and one practical. The abstract came first. Ever since I became conscious of my existence, I've had a passionate interest in understanding it, and I regarded my own understanding as the central problem that needed to be understood. To understand oneself is an impossible task. To achieve anything resembling knowledge, we must be able to draw a distinction between subject and object. Yet in this case, the two are the same. What one thinks is part of what one thinks about. Therefore, one's thinking lacks an independent point of reference by which it can be judged. It lacks objectivity. As an undergraduate, I studied economics, but I found economic theory highly unsatisfactory because it failed to come to grips with this problem. Indeed, it went through great contortions to avoid it. Economics seeks to be a science. Science is supposed to be objective, and it is difficult to be scientific when the subject matter, the participant in the economic process, lacks objectivity. I was greatly influenced at the time by Karl Popper's ideas on scientific method. I accepted most of his views, with one major exception. He argued in favor of what he called unity of method, that is, the methods and criteria that apply to the study of natural phenomena also apply to the study of social events. I felt that there was a fundamental difference between the two. The events studied by the social sciences have thinking participants. Natural phenomena do not. The participants' thinking creates problems that have no counterpart in natural science. The closest analogy is in quantum physics, where scientific observation gives rise to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. But in social events, it is the participants' thinking that is responsible for the element of uncertainty, not the outside observer. Natural science studies events that consist of a sequence of facts. When events have thinking participants, the subject matter is no longer confined to facts, but also includes the participants' perceptions. The chain of causation does not lead directly from fact to fact, but from fact to perception and from perception to fact. This would not create any insuperable difficulties if there were some kind of correspondence or equivalence between facts and perceptions. Unfortunately, that is impossible because the participants' perceptions do not relate to facts, but to a situation that is contingent on their own perceptions and therefore cannot be treated as a fact. Economic theory tries to sidestep the issue by introducing the assumption of rational behavior. People are assumed to act by choosing the best of the available alternatives, but somehow the distinction between perceived alternatives and facts is assumed away. The result is a theoretical construction of great elegance that resembles natural science, but does not resemble reality. It relates to an ideal world in which participants act on the basis of perfect knowledge, and it produces a theoretical equilibrium in which the allocation of resources is at an optimum. It has little relevance to the real world in which people act on the basis of imperfect understanding 
and equilibrium is beyond reach. The relationship between the participants' understanding and the situation in which they participate continued to preoccupy me long after I left college. My first priority was to try and make a living, but in my spare time I wrote a philosophical treatise on the subject with the catchy title, The Burden of Consciousness. Unfortunately, the title was the best part of it. By the time I finished, I disagreed with my own presentation. I spent three years revising it. One day I reread what I had written the day before, and I could not make head or tail of it. It made me realize that I had reached a dead end, and I decided to give it up. That was when the practical streak in me began to dominate my intellectual development. If I had to sum up my practical skills, I would use one word, survival. When I was an adolescent, the Second World War gave me a lesson that I have never forgotten. I was fortunate enough to have a father who was highly skilled in the art of survival, having lived through the Russian Revolution as an escaped prisoner of war. Under his tutelage, the Second World War served as an advanced course at a tender age. As the reader shall see, the investment vehicle I created a quarter of a century later drew heavily on skills I learned as an adolescent. After leaving college, I had a number of false starts and finally became an international arbitrage trader in stocks, first in London and then in New York. When the European Common Market was formed in 1957, American investors became interested in European shares. I became a security analyst advising American institutions on their European investments, and for a brief period I ruled as a one-eyed king among the blind. My glory came to an abrupt end when President Kennedy introduced a so-called interest equalization tax, which effectively stopped purchases of foreign securities. I decided to put my money-making activities on the back burner and spent three years, from 1963 to 1966, revising the burden of consciousness. When I finally decided to return to the land of the living, I started a model portfolio that became a hedge fund, a mutual fund that employs leverage and uses various techniques of hedging, in 1969. I have been in charge of that fund ever since, although I delegated much of the responsibility to others between September 1981 and September 1984. The fund has grown from about $4 million at inception to nearly $2 billion, and most of the growth has been internally generated. Original investors have seen the value of their shares multiply 300-fold. No investment fund has ever produced comparable results. In the first ten years of my business career, I had not much use for anything I had learned in college, and there was an almost total separation between my practical activities and my theoretical interests. Selling and trading in securities was a game I played without putting my true self on the line. All this changed when I became a fund manager. I was putting my money where my mouth was, and I could not afford to dissociate myself from my investment decisions. I had to use all my intellectual resources, and I discovered, to my great surprise and gratification, that my abstract ideas came in very handy. It would be an exaggeration to say that they accounted for my success, but there can be no doubt that they gave me an edge. I developed my own peculiar approach to investing, which was at loggerheads with the prevailing wisdom. The generally accepted view is that markets are always right. That is, 
Market prices tend to discount future developments accurately even when it is unclear what those developments are. I start with the opposite point of view. I believe that market prices are always wrong, in the sense that they present a biased view of the future. But distortion works in both directions. Not only do market participants operate with a bias, but their bias can also influence the course of events. This may create the impression that markets anticipate future developments accurately, but in fact it is not present expectations that correspond to future events, but future events that are shaped by present expectations. The participants' perceptions are inherently flawed, and there is a two-way connection between flawed perceptions and the actual course of events, which results in a lack of correspondence between the two. I call this two-way connection reflexivity. In the course of my investment activities, I discovered that financial markets operate on a principle that is somehow akin to scientific method. Making an investment decision is like formulating a scientific hypothesis and submitting it to a practical test. The main difference is that the hypothesis that underlies an investment decision is intended to make money and not to establish a universally valid generalization. Both activities involve significant risk, and success brings a corresponding reward, monetary in one case and scientific in the other. Taking this view, it is possible to see financial markets as a laboratory for testing hypotheses, albeit not strictly scientific ones. The truth is, successful investing is a kind of alchemy. Most market participants do not view markets in this light. That means that they do not know what hypotheses are being tested. It also means that most of the hypotheses that are submitted to market testing are quite banal. Usually, they amount to nothing more than the assertion that a particular stock is going to outperform the market averages. I had a certain advantage over other investors because at least I had an idea about the way financial markets operate. I would be lying, however, if I claimed that I could always formulate worthwhile hypotheses on the basis of my theoretical framework. Sometimes there were no reflexive processes to be found. Sometimes I failed to find them. And what was the most painful of all, sometimes I got them wrong. One way or another, I often invested without a worthwhile hypothesis, and my activities were not very different from a random walk. But I was attuned to reflexive processes in financial markets, and my major successes came from exploiting the opportunities they presented. My approach to the market was not as abstract as it sounds. It took an intensely personal, emotional form. Testing was closely associated with pain and success with relief. When I asserted that markets are always biased, I was giving expression to a deeply felt attitude. I had a very low regard for the sagacity of professional investors, and the more influential their position, the less I considered them capable of making the right decisions. My partner and I took a malicious pleasure in making money by selling short stocks that were institutional favorites. But we differed in our attitudes to our own activities. He regarded only the other participants' views as flawed, while I thought that we had as good a chance of being wrong as anyone else. The assumption of inherently flawed perceptions suited my self-critical attitude. Operating a hedge fund utilized my training in survival to the fullest. Using leverage can produce superior results when the going is good, 
but it can wipe you out when events fail to conform to your expectations. One of the hardest things to judge is what level of risk is safe. There are no universally valid yardsticks. Each situation needs to be judged on its own merit. In the final analysis, you must rely on your instincts for survival. Thus, my engagement in running a hedge fund brought together both my abstract interests and my practical skills. I did not play the financial markets according to a particular set of rules. I was always more interested in understanding the changes that occur in the rules of the game. I started with hypotheses relating to individual companies. With the passage of time, my interests veered increasingly toward macroeconomic themes. This was due partly to the growth of the fund and partly to the growing instability of the macroeconomic environment. For instance, exchange rates were fixed until 1973. Subsequently, they became a fertile field for speculation. For the past four or five years, I have had a growing sense of impending financial disaster. I felt that a long-lasting expansionary cycle was becoming increasingly unsound and unsustainable, and we were getting ready for a bust. That was one of the reasons I distanced myself from the active management of the fund in 1981 and reduced its overall level of exposure. My interest shifted from my own survival to the survival of the system. I made a study of the international debt problem and published some papers on the subject. I used the same theoretical framework as in my investment activities, and my analysis was not without merit. Unfortunately, the more complex the system, the greater the room for error. I made some mistakes in my analysis that detracted from the accuracy of my predictions. They also had a detrimental effect on my investment results until I revised my views in the course of writing this book. The more successful I had been in applying my ideas in financial markets, the keener I became to express them in theoretical form. I continued to cherish the fantasy that the concept of reflexivity constitutes a major contribution to our understanding of the world in which we live. I believed that the participant's bias is the key to an understanding of all historical processes that have thinking participants, just as genetic mutation is the key to biological evolution. But a satisfactory formulation of the theory of reflexivity continued to elude me. I always ran into trouble when I tried to define what I meant by the imperfect understanding of the participants. To speak accurately of a distortion, we must know what the situation would be if it were not distorted by the participants' perceptions. Unfortunately, that does not seem possible, because the participants' thinking is an integral part of the situation they have to think about. It is not surprising that the concept of reflexivity should present extreme difficulties. If it were an easier concept to work with, economists and other social scientists would not have gone to such lengths to banish it from their subject matter. This book is a final attempt to explore the implications of reflexivity. I have tried to circumvent the difficulties I encountered in the past by approaching the subject from the opposite direction. Instead of getting bogged down in abstract theory, I am going to draw on my experimental practical findings to the greatest possible extent. I cannot avoid an abstract discussion altogether, but I have confined it to a single chapter. In exploring the practical implications, I start with the simplest cases and gradually lead up to more complex ones. 
This approach happens to coincide with the historical order in which I encountered reflexive developments in practice. First the stock market, then the currency market, then the international debt problem, and finally what may be called the credit cycle. The stock market provides some pure examples of a boom-and-bust pattern. Freely floating currency rates allow me to explore well-formed wave patterns. The boom and bust in international bank lending is part of a more complex historical process of credit expansion and eventual credit contraction. It has given rise to the configuration that I have dubbed Reagan's Imperial Circle. The configuration prevailed from the international debt crisis of 1982 until the first half of 1985, but it was inherently unstable. How the instability will be resolved is one of the main questions considered in this book. The experimental approach has borne unexpected results. I made two major discoveries in the course of writing. One is a reflexive connection between credit and collateral. The other is a reflexive relationship between the regulators and the economy they regulate. It has long been assumed that monetary values are a passive reflection of the state of affairs in the real world. Classical economics focused on the real world and neglected the problems connected with money and credit. Even Keynes couched his general theory in real terms. Monetarists sought to stand the relationship on its head. They argued that it is possible to control inflation by controlling the growth of the money supply. In my opinion, all these views are based on a fundamental misconception. Money values do not simply mirror the state of affairs in the real world. Valuation is a positive act that makes an impact on the course of events. Monetary and real phenomena are connected in a reflexive fashion. That is, they influence each other mutually. The reflexive relationship manifests itself most clearly in the use and abuse of credit. Loans are based on the lender's estimation of the borrower's ability to service his debt. The valuation of the collateral is supposed to be independent of the act of lending. But in actual fact, the act of lending can affect the value of the collateral. This is true of the individual case and of the economy as a whole. Credit expansion stimulates the economy and enhances collateral values. The repayment or contraction of credit has a depressing influence both on the economy and on the valuation of the collateral. The connection between credit and economic activity is anything but constant. For instance, credit for building a new factory has quite a different effect from credit for a leveraged buyout. This makes it difficult to quantify the connection between credit and economic activity, yet it is a mistake to ignore it. The monetarist school has done so, with disastrous consequences. The reflexive interaction between the act of lending and collateral values has led me to postulate a pattern in which a period of gradual, slowly accelerating credit expansion is followed by a short period of credit contraction, the classic sequence of boom and bust. The bust is compressed in time because the attempt to liquidate loans causes a sudden implosion of collateral values. Economic history has been punctuated by booms and busts. Nevertheless, the concept of a credit cycle is too simplistic to explain the course of events. For one thing, the connection between credit and economic activity is too tenuous and variable to yield a regular pattern. For another, the sequence of events is greatly complicated by the influence of economic policy. 
Periodic busts have been so devastating that strenuous efforts have been made to prevent them. These efforts have led to the evolution of central banking and of other mechanisms for controlling credit and regulating economic activity. To understand the role of the regulators, it must be realized that they are also participants. Their understanding is inherently imperfect and their actions have unintended consequences. The relationship between the regulators and the economy is reflexive, and it also exhibits cyclical characteristics in the sense that it tends to swing from one extreme to another. What is the connection between the regulatory cycle and the credit cycle? At this point, my views become very tentative. I believe that the two cycles broadly overlap in time, that the minimum of regulations tends to coincide with the maximum of credit expansion, and vice versa. But within this chronological coincidence, there is constant interaction between the two cycles that influences the shape and duration of both. The interaction between the two cycles yields a unique path that cannot be fitted into any regular or repetitive pattern. I should like to emphasize that this book is not meant to provide a practical guide to getting rich in the stock market. Most of what I know is in the book, at least in theoretical form. I have not kept anything deliberately hidden. But the chain of reasoning operates in the opposite direction. I am not trying to explain how to use my approach to make money. Rather, I am using my experiences in the financial markets to develop an approach to the study of historical processes in general and the present historical moment in particular. If I did not believe that my investment activities can serve that purpose, I would not want to write about them. As long as I am actively engaged in business, I would be better off to keep them a trade secret. But I would value it much more highly than any business success— if I could contribute to an understanding of the world in which we live, or, better yet, if I could help to preserve the economic and political system that has allowed me to flourish as a participant. The Theory of Reflexivity Economic theory is devoted to the study of equilibrium positions. The concept of an equilibrium is very useful. It allows us to focus on the final outcome rather than on the process that leads up to it. But the concept is also very deceptive. It has the aura of something empirical. Since the adjustment process is supposed to lead to an equilibrium, an equilibrium position seems somehow implicit in our observations. That is not true. Equilibrium itself has rarely been observed in real life. Market prices have a notorious habit of fluctuating. The process that can be observed is supposed to move toward an equilibrium. Why is it that the equilibrium is never reached? It is true that market participants adjust to market prices, but they may be adjusting to a constantly moving target. In that case, calling the participants' behavior an adjustment process may be a misnomer, and equilibrium theory becomes irrelevant to the real world. Equilibrium is the product of an axiomatic system. Economic theory is constructed like logic or mathematics. It is based on certain postulates, and all of its conclusions are derived from them by logical manipulation. The possibility that equilibrium is never reached need not invalidate the logical construction, but when a hypothetical equilibrium is presented as a model of reality, a significant distortion is introduced. If we lived in a world in which the angles of a triangle did not add up to 180 degrees, Euclidean geometry would constitute such a misleading model. 
The crowning achievement of the axiomatic approach is the theory of perfect competition. Although it was first propounded nearly 200 years ago, it has never been superseded. Only the method of analysis has been refined. The theory holds that under certain specified circumstances, the unrestrained pursuit of self-interest leads to the optimum allocation of resources. The equilibrium point is reached when each firm produces at a level where its marginal cost equals the market price, and each consumer buys an amount whose marginal utility equals the market price. Analysis shows that the equilibrium position maximizes the benefit of all participants, provided no individual buyer or seller can influence market prices. It is this line of argument that has served as the theoretical underpinning for the laissez-faire policies of the 19th century, and it is also the basis of the current belief in the magic of the marketplace. Let us examine the main assumptions of the theory of perfect competition. Those that are spelled out include perfect knowledge, homogeneous and divisible products, and a large enough number of participants so that no single participant can influence the market price. The assumption of perfect knowledge is suspect because understanding a situation in which one participates cannot qualify as knowledge. That was the assumption that I found so unacceptable as a student. I have no doubt that classical economists used the assumption in exactly that sense in which I found it objectionable, because 19th-century thinkers were less aware of the limitations of knowledge than we are today. As the epistemological problems began to surface, exponents of the theory found that they could get by using a more modest word, information. In its modern formulation, the theory merely postulates perfect information. Unfortunately, this assumption is not quite sufficient to support the construction of the theory. To make up for the deficiency, modern economists resorted to an ingenious device. They insisted that the demand and supply curves should be taken as given. They did not present this as a postulate. Rather, they based their claim on methodological grounds. They argued that the task of economics is to study the relationship between supply and demand, and not either by itself. Demand may be a suitable subject for psychologists, Supply may be the province of engineers or management scientists. Both are beyond the scope of economics. Therefore, both must be taken as given. Yet, if we stop to ask what it means that the conditions of supply and demand are independently given, it is clear that an additional assumption has been introduced. Otherwise, where would those curves come from? We are dealing with an assumption disguised as a methodological device. Participants are supposed to choose between alternatives in accordance with their scale of preferences. The unspoken assumption is that the participants know what those preferences and alternatives are. As I shall try to show, this assumption is untenable. The shape of the supply and demand curves cannot be taken as independently given because both of them incorporate the participants' expectations about events that are shaped by their own expectations. Nowhere is the role of expectations more clearly visible than in financial markets. Buy and sell decisions are based on expectations about future prices, and future prices, in turn, are contingent on present buy and sell decisions. To speak of supply and demand as if they were determined by forces that are independent of the market participants' expectations is quite misleading. 
The situation is not quite so clear-cut in the case of commodities, where supply is largely dependent on production and demand on consumption. But the price that determines the amounts produced and consumed is not necessarily the present price. On the contrary, market participants are more likely to be guided by future prices, either as expressed in futures markets or as anticipated by themselves. In either case, it is inappropriate to speak of independently given supply and demand curves because both curves incorporate the participants' expectations about future prices. The very idea that events in the marketplace may affect the shape of the demand and supply curves seems incongruous to those who have been reared on classical economics. The demand and supply curves are supposed to determine the market price. If they were themselves subject to market influences, prices would cease to be uniquely determined. Instead of equilibrium, we would be left with fluctuating prices. This would be a devastating state of affairs. All the conclusions of economic theory would lose their relevance to the real world. It is to prevent this outcome that the methodological device that treats the supply and demand curves as independently given was introduced. Yet there is something insidious about using a methodological device to obscure an assumption that would be untenable if it were spelled out. To preserve the integrity of economic theory as an axiomatic system, its assumptions ought to be explicitly stated. We may then conclude that economic theory is no more relevant to the real world than non-Euclidean geometry, but at least we would know where we stand. Instead, we have been deceived by a methodological subterfuge. The demand and supply curves are presented in textbooks as though they were grounded in empirical evidence. But there is scant evidence for independently given demand and supply curves. Anyone who trades in markets where prices are continuously changing knows that participants are very much influenced by market developments. Rising prices often attract buyers and vice versa. How could self-reinforcing trends persist if supply and demand curves were independent of market prices? Yet even a cursory look at commodity stock and currency markets confirms that trends are the rule rather than the exception. The theory of perfect competition could be defended by arguing that the trends we can observe in commodity and financial markets are merely temporary aberrations which will be eliminated in the long run by the fundamental forces of supply and demand. It should be remembered that the theory of perfect competition does not claim to define the path of adjustment. It merely analyzes the situation after all the adjustments have taken place. The trouble with the argument is that there can be no assurance that fundamental forces will correct speculative excesses. It is just as possible that speculation will alter the supposedly fundamental conditions of supply and demand. In the normal course of events, a speculative price rise provokes countervailing forces. Supply is increased and demand reduced, and the temporary excess is corrected with the passage of time. But there are exceptions. In foreign exchange, for example, a sustained price movement can be self-validating because of its impact on domestic price levels. The same is true in the stock market, where the performance of a stock may affect the performance of the company in question in a number of ways. And in examining the recent history of international lending, we shall find that excessive lending first increased the borrowing capacity of debtor countries, as measured by their debt ratios, and then, when the banks wanted to be repaid, the debtor country's ability to do so evaporated. 
Generally speaking, we shall find that the expansion and contraction of credit can affect the debtor's ability and willingness to pay. Are these exceptions that confirm the rule, or do they necessitate a revision of accepted theory? The answer depends on the frequency and severity of their occurrence. If we are dealing with an isolated instance, we can treat it as a paradox, but if one incident follows another, we must question the theory. I contend that such paradoxical behavior is typical of all financial markets that serve as a discounting mechanism for future developments, notably stock markets, foreign exchange markets, banking, and all forms of credit. Microeconomic theory may continue to ignore it because there are large areas of economic activity where it occurs only occasionally or not at all. But we cannot expect to understand macroeconomic developments without taking the phenomenon into account. A world of fluctuating exchange rates and large-scale capital movements is characterized by vicious and benign circles in which the normal pattern of causation, as defined by classical economics, seems to be reversed. Market developments dictate the evolution of the conditions of supply and demand, not the other way around. If the process of adjustment does not lead to an equilibrium, what happens to the conclusions of economic theory? The answer is that they remain valid as deductions, but they lose their relevance to the real world. If we want to understand the real world, we must divert our gaze from a hypothetical final outcome and concentrate our attention on the process of change that we can observe all around us. This will require a radical shift in our thinking. A process of change is much more difficult to understand than a static equilibrium. We shall have to revise many of our preconceived ideas about the kind of understanding that is attainable, and satisfy ourselves with conclusions that are far less definite than those that economic theory sought to provide. The understanding of the actual course of events, as distinct from a hypothetical equilibrium, poses problems that have not been properly appreciated. The problems arise because participants base their decisions on an inherently imperfect understanding of the situation in which they participate. My approach is to tackle the problem of imperfect understanding head-on. What makes the participants' understanding imperfect is that their thinking affects the situation to which it relates. The causal role played by the participants' thinking has no counterpart in the phenomena studied by natural scientists. It is obviously not the only force shaping the course of events, but it is a force which is unique to events that have thinking participants. Hence, it deserves to take center stage. As we have seen, imperfect understanding is a very difficult concept to work with. We have established that there is a lack of correspondence between the participants' thinking and the situation to which it relates. But the lack of correspondence is difficult to define, let alone measure. The participants' thinking is part of the situation to which it relates, and the very idea of correspondence is inappropriate to describing a relationship between a part and a whole. The idea was imported from natural science, where facts and statements belong to separate universes, and from philosophy, where correspondence serves as the criterion of truth. The analogy does not apply to the participant, who is, by definition, part of the situation that he is trying to understand. We can speak of a lack of correspondence, but we cannot define that to which the participant's understanding fails to correspond because it simply does not exist. To simplify matters, I shall speak of an inherent bias in the participant's thinking. 
since the bias is inherent, the unbiased is unattainable. There is, however, a norm in the outside world against which the participant's bias can be measured. Although there is no reality independent of the participant's perception, there is a reality that is dependent on it. In other words, there is a sequence of events that actually occurs, and that sequence reflects the participant's behavior. The actual course of events is likely to differ from the participant's expectations, and the divergence can be taken as an indication of the participant's bias. Unfortunately, it can be taken only as an indication, not as the full measure of the bias, because the actual course of events already incorporates the effects of the participant's thinking. Thus, the participant's bias finds expression both in the divergence between outcome and expectations and in the actual course of events. A phenomenon that is partially observable and partially submerged in the course of events does not lend itself readily to scientific investigation. We can now appreciate why economists were so anxious to eliminate it from their theories. We shall make it the focal point of our investigation. The connection between the participants' thinking and the situation in which they participate can be broken up into two functional relationships. I call the participants' efforts to understand the situation the cognitive or passive function and the impact of their thinking on the real world the participating or active function. In the cognitive function, the participants' perceptions depend on the situation. In the participating function, the situation is influenced by the participants' perceptions. It can be seen that the two functions work in opposite directions. In the cognitive function, the independent variable is the situation. In the participating function, it is the participants' thinking. There are many cases where one or the other function can be observed in isolation, but there are also instances where they are both operating at the same time. An obvious example of the cognitive function is when someone learns from experience. Examples of the participating function are to be found in textbooks of economics, where the participants apply a given set of preferences to a given set of opportunities and in the process determine prices. When both functions operate at the same time, they interfere with each other. Functions need an independent variable in order to produce a determinate result, but in this case the independent variable of one function is the dependent variable of the other. Instead of a determinate result, we have an interplay in which both the situations and the participants' views are dependent variables, so that an initial change precipitates further changes both in the situation and in the participants' views. I call this interaction reflexivity using the word as the French do when they describe a verb whose subject and object are the same. This is the theoretical foundation of my approach. The two recursive functions do not produce an equilibrium, but a never-ending process of change. When a situation has thinking participants, the sequence of events does not lead directly from one set of facts to the next. Rather, it connects facts to perceptions and perceptions to facts in a shoelace pattern. Thus, the concept of reflexivity yields a shoelace theory of history. Returning to economic theory, it can be argued that it is the participant's bias that renders the equilibrium position unattainable. The target toward which the adjustment process leads incorporates a bias, and the bias may shift in the process. When that happens, the process aims not at an equilibrium, but at a moving target. 
How significant is the distortion introduced by neglecting the participant's bias? In microeconomic analysis, the distortion is negligible and the participant's bias can be accounted for easily. As a first step, the participant's bias can be taken as given. That provides a static equilibrium. To make the analysis more dynamic, changes in the participant's bias can be added piecemeal, expressed as changes in consumer habits or production methods. All that is obscured by this piecemeal approach is the possible connection between the various changes in the conditions of supply and demand. But that omission does not invalidate the conclusions microeconomic analysis seeks to establish. When it comes to financial markets, the distortion is more serious. The participant's bias is an element in determining prices, and no important market development leaves the participant's bias unaffected. The search for an equilibrium price turns out to be a wild goose chase, and theories about the equilibrium price can themselves become a fertile source of bias. To paraphrase J.P. Morgan, financial markets will continue to fluctuate. In trying to deal with macroeconomic developments, equilibrium analysis is totally inappropriate. Nothing could be further removed from reality than the assumption that participants base their decisions on perfect knowledge. People are groping to anticipate the future with the help of whatever guideposts they can establish. The outcome tends to diverge from expectations, leading to constantly changing expectations and constantly changing outcomes. The process is reflexive. In his General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, Keynes managed to show that full employment is a special case. If we could develop a general theory of reflexivity, equilibrium would appear as a special case. While it will hardly qualify as a general theory, I shall try to explore the role of reflexivity in financial markets. That means that I shall try to interpret their functioning as a historical process. Reflexivity in the Stock Market In trying to develop a theory of reflexivity, I shall start with the stock market. For one thing, it is the market I am most familiar with. I have been a professional investor for more than 25 years. For another, the stock market provides an excellent laboratory for testing theories. Changes are expressed in quantitative terms, and the data are easily accessible. Even the participants' views are usually available in the form of brokers' reports. Most important, I have actually tested my theory in the stock market, and I have some interesting case studies to present. As I mentioned in the introduction, I did not develop my ideas on reflexivity in connection with my activities in the stock market. The theory of reflexivity started out as abstract philosophical speculation, and only gradually did I discover its relevance to the behavior of stock prices. I was singularly unsuccessful in formulating my theory at the level of abstraction at which I conceived it. My failure as a philosopher stands in stark contrast with my career as an investment professional. I hope that by presenting my ideas in the reverse order from the one in which I arrived at them, I may be able to avoid getting lost in arcane abstractions. There is yet another reason why the stock market may provide the best entry point for the study of reflexive phenomena. The stock market comes as close to meeting the criteria of perfect competition as any market. A central marketplace, homogeneous products, low transaction and transportation costs, instant communications, 
a large enough crowd of participants to ensure that no individual can influence market prices in the ordinary course of events, and special rules for insider transactions as well as special safeguards to provide all participants with access to relevant information. What more can one ask for? If there is any place where the theory of perfect competition ought to be translated into practice, it is in the stock market. Yet there is little empirical evidence of an equilibrium or even a tendency for prices to move toward an equilibrium. The concept of an equilibrium seems irrelevant at best and misleading at worst. The evidence shows persistent fluctuations, whatever length of time is chosen as the period of observation. Admittedly, the underlying conditions that are supposed to be reflected in stock prices are also constantly changing, but it is difficult to establish any firm relationship between changes in stock prices and changes in underlying conditions. Whatever relationship can be established has to be imputed rather than observed. I intend to use the theory of reflexivity to criticize the preoccupation of economic theory with the equilibrium position. What better example could I find than the stock market? Existing theories about the behavior of stock prices are remarkably inadequate. They are of so little value to the practitioner that I am not even fully familiar with them. The fact that I could get by without them speaks for itself. Generally, theories fall into two categories, fundamentalist and technical. More recently, the random walk theory has come into vogue. This theory holds that the market fully discounts all future developments so that the individual participants' chances of over- or underperforming the market as a whole are even. This line of argument has served as theoretical justification for the increasing number of institutions that invest their money in index funds. The theory is manifestly false. I have disproved it by consistently outperforming the averages over a period of 12 years. Institutions may be well advised to invest in index funds rather than making specific investment decisions, but the reason is to be found in their substandard performance, not in the impossibility of outperforming the averages. Technical analysis studies market patterns and the demand and supply of stocks. It has undoubted merit in predicting probabilities, but not the actual course of events. For the purposes of this discussion, it is of no particular interest because it has little theoretical foundation other than the assertions that stock prices are determined by their supply and demand and that past experience is relevant in predicting the future. Fundamental analysis is more interesting because it is an outgrowth of equilibrium theory. Stocks are supposed to have a true or fundamental value as distinct from their current market price. The fundamental value of a stock may be defined either in relation to the earning power of the underlying assets or in relation to the fundamental value of other stocks. In either case, the market price of a stock is supposed to tend toward its fundamental value over a period of time so that the analysis of fundamental values provides a useful guide to investment decisions. The important point about this approach is that the connection between stock prices and the companies whose stocks are traded is assumed to be in one direction. The fortunes of the companies determine, however belatedly, the relative values of the various stocks traded in the stock market. The possibility that stock market developments may affect the fortunes of the companies is left out of account. There is a clear parallel with the theory of price, where the indifference curve determines the relative amounts consumed, 
and the possibility that the market may influence the indifference curve is disregarded. The parallel is not accidental. The fundamentalist approach is based on the theory of price. But the omission is more glaring in the stock market than in other markets. Stock market valuations have a direct way of influencing underlying values, through the issue and repurchase of shares and options, and through corporate transactions of all kinds, mergers, acquisitions, going public, going private, and so on. There are also more subtle ways in which stock prices may influence the standing of a company, credit rating, consumer acceptance, management credibility, etc. The influence of these factors on stock prices is, of course, fully recognized. It is the influence of stock prices on these factors that is so strangely ignored by the fundamentalist approach. If there are any glaring discrepancies between prevailing stock prices and fundamental values, they are attributed to future developments in the companies concerned that are not yet known but are correctly anticipated by the stock market. Movements in stock prices are believed to precede the developments that subsequently justify them. How future developments ought to be discounted is the subject of an ongoing debate, but it is presumed that the market is doing the job correctly, even if the correct method cannot be theoretically established. This point of view follows naturally from the theory of perfect competition. It is summed up in the assertion that the market is always right. The assertion is generally accepted, even by people who do not put much faith in fundamental analysis. I take a totally opposite point of view. I do not accept the proposition that stock prices are a passive reflection of underlying values, nor do I accept the proposition that the reflection tends to correspond to the underlying value. I contend that market valuations are always distorted. Moreover, and this is the crucial departure from equilibrium theory, the distortions can affect the underlying values. Stock prices are not merely passive reflections. They are active ingredients in a process in which both stock prices and the fortunes of the companies whose stocks are traded are determined. In other words, I regard changes in stock prices as part of a historical process, and I focus on the discrepancy between the participants' expectations and the actual course of events as a causal factor in that process. To explain the process, I take the discrepancy as my starting point. I do not rule out the possibility that events may actually correspond to people's expectations, but I treat it as a limiting case. Translating this assertion into market terms, I claim that market participants are always biased in one way or another. I do not deny that markets have a predictive or anticipating power that seems uncanny at times, but I argue that it can be explained by the influence that the participant's bias has on the course of events. For instance, the stock market is generally believed to anticipate recessions. It would be more correct to say that it can help to precipitate them. Thus, I replace the assertion that markets are always right with two others. One, Markets are always biased in one direction or another. Two, markets can influence the events that they anticipate. The combination of these two assertions explains why markets may so often appear to anticipate events correctly. Using the participants' bias as our starting point, we can try to build a model of the interaction between the participants' views and the situation in which they participate. What makes the analysis so difficult is that the participants' views are part of the situation to which they relate. 
To make any sense of such a complex situation, we need to simplify it. I introduced a simplifying concept when I spoke of the participant's bias. Now I want to take the argument a step further and introduce the concept of a prevailing bias. Markets have many participants whose views are bound to differ. I shall assume that many of the individual biases cancel each other out, leaving what I call the prevailing bias. This assumption is not appropriate to all historical processes, but it does apply to the stock market and to other markets as well. What makes the procedure of aggregating individual perceptions legitimate is that they can be related to a common denominator, namely stock prices. In other historical processes, the participants' views are too diffuse to be aggregated and the concept of a prevailing bias becomes little more than a metaphor. In these cases, a different model may be needed, but in the stock market, the participants' bias finds expression in purchases and sales. Other things being equal, a positive bias leads to rising stock prices and a negative one to falling prices. Thus, the prevailing bias is an observable phenomenon. Other things are, of course, never equal. We need to know a little more about those other things in order to build our model. At this point, I shall introduce a second simplifying concept. I shall postulate an underlying trend that influences the movement of stock prices, whether it is recognized by investors or not. The influence on stock prices will, of course, vary, depending on the market participants' views. The trend in stock prices can then be envisioned as a composite of the underlying trend and the prevailing bias. How do these two factors interact? It will be recalled that there are two connections at play, the participating and the cognitive functions. The underlying trend influences the participant's perceptions through the cognitive function. The resulting change in perceptions affects the situation through the participating function. In the case of the stock market, the primary impact is on stock prices. The change in stock prices may, in turn, affect both the participant's bias and the underlying trend. We have here a reflexive relationship in which stock prices are determined by two factors, underlying trend and prevailing bias, both of which are in turn influenced by stock prices. The interplay between stock prices and the other two factors has no constant. What is supposed to be the independent variable in one function is the dependent variable in the other. Without a constant, there is no tendency toward equilibrium. The sequence of events is best interpreted as a process of historical change in which none of the variables, stock prices, underlying trend, and prevailing bias, remains as it was before. In the typical sequence, the three variables reinforce each other, first in one direction and then in the other, in a pattern that is known in its simplest form as boom and bust. First, we must start with some definitions. When stock prices reinforce the underlying trend, we shall call the trend self-reinforcing. When they work in the opposite direction, self-correcting. The same terminology holds for the prevailing bias. It can be self-reinforcing or self-correcting. It is important to realize what these terms mean. When a trend is reinforced, it accelerates. When the bias is reinforced, the divergence between expectations and the actual course of future stock prices gets wider, and, conversely, when it is self-correcting, the divergence gets narrower. As far as stock prices are concerned, we shall describe them simply as rising and falling. 
When the prevailing bias helps to raise prices, we shall call it positive. When it works in the opposite direction, negative. Thus, rising prices are reinforced by a positive bias and falling prices by a negative one. In a boom-bust sequence, we would expect to find at least one stretch where rising prices are reinforced by a positive bias and another where falling prices are reinforced by a negative bias. There must also be a point where the underlying trend and the prevailing bias combine to reverse the trend in stock prices. Let us now try to build a rudimentary model of boom and bust. We start with an underlying trend that is not yet recognized, although a prevailing bias that is not yet reflected in stock prices is also conceivable. Thus, the prevailing bias is negative to start with. When the market participants recognize the trend, this change in perceptions will affect stock prices. The change in stock prices may or may not affect the underlying trend. In the latter case, there is little more to discuss. In the former case, we have the beginning of a self-reinforcing process. The enhanced trend will affect the prevailing bias in one of two ways. It will lead to the expectation of further acceleration or to the expectation of a correction. In the latter case, the underlying trend may or may not survive the correction in stock prices. In the former case, a positive bias develops, causing a further rise in stock prices and a further acceleration in the underlying trend. As long as the bias is self-reinforcing, expectations rise even faster than stock prices. The underlying trend becomes increasingly influenced by stock prices, and the rise in stock prices becomes increasingly dependent on the prevailing bias, so that both the underlying trend and the prevailing bias become increasingly vulnerable. Eventually, the trend in prices cannot sustain prevailing expectations, and a correction sets in. Disappointed expectations have a negative effect on stock prices, and faltering stock prices weaken the underlying trend. If the underlying trend has become overly dependent on stock prices, the correction may turn into a total reversal. In that case, stock prices fall, the underlying trend is reversed, and expectations fall even further. In this way, a self-reinforcing process gets started in the opposite direction. Eventually, the downturn also reaches a climax and reverses itself. Typically, a self-reinforcing process undergoes orderly corrections in the early stages, and if it survives them, the bias tends to be reinforced and is less easily shaken. When the process is advanced, corrections become scarcer and the danger of a climactic reversal greater. A few words about the theoretical construction of the model may be in order. We are interested in the interplay between the participant's bias and the actual course of events. The great merit of this construction is that it uses variables that can be quantified. Stock prices serve as a convenient proxy for the situation to which the participant's bias relates. In other historical processes, the situation that is interconnected with the participant's perception by the cognitive and participating functions is more difficult to identify and impossible to quantify. It is the availability of a convenient proxy that renders the stock market such a useful laboratory for studying reflexivity. Unfortunately, the model offers only a partial explanation of how stock prices are determined. The concept of an underlying trend has been introduced as a placeholder term to denote changes in the fundamentals. What the fundamentals are has not been defined. Even the question of how the fundamentals are to be measured 
has not been answered. Earnings, dividends, asset value, free cash flow. All these yardsticks are relevant, as well as many others, but the relative weight given to each depends on the investor's judgments and is therefore subject to their bias. We may use earnings per share for purposes of illustration, but that merely begs the question. It is a question security analysts have been struggling with for a long time. We do not need to answer it here in order to develop a theory of reflexivity. Without knowing anything about the fundamentals, we can make some worthwhile generalizations. The first generalization is that stock prices must have some effect on the fundamentals, whatever they are, in order to create a boom-bust pattern. Sometimes the connection is direct, as in the examples I shall use in this chapter, but generally it is indirect. Often it makes its effect felt through a political process, such as changes in taxation, or regulation, or attitudes to saving and investing. It is possible to have a reflexive connection between stock prices and the prevailing bias, even if the fundamentals remain unaffected. But the connection becomes interesting only if the fundamentals are also involved. Without a change in fundamentals, the prevailing bias is likely to be corrected in short order, as we can observe in the daily fluctuations of stock prices. It would be quite in order to ignore the bias as mere noise. That is what the theory of perfect competition and the fundamentalist approach to security analysis have done. By contrast, when the fundamentals are affected, the bias cannot be left out of account without serious distortion, because the bias gives rise to a self-reinforcing, self-defeating process that leaves neither stock prices, nor the fundamentals, nor the participants' views the same as they were before. The second generalization is that there is bound to be a flaw in the participant's perception of the fundamentals. The flaw may not be apparent in the early stages, but it is likely to manifest itself later on. When it does, it sets the stage for a reversal in the prevailing bias. If the change in bias reverses the underlying trend, a self-reinforcing process is set in motion in the opposite direction. What the flaw is, and how and when it is likely to manifest itself, are the keys to understanding boom-bust sequences. The model I presented above is built on these two generalizations. It hardly needs emphasizing how crude the model is. Nevertheless, it is valuable in identifying the crucial features of a typical boom-bust sequence. These are the unrecognized trend, the beginning of a self-reinforcing process, the successful test, the growing conviction, resulting in a widening divergence between reality and expectations, the flaw in perceptions, the climax, a self-reinforcing process in the opposite direction. Just by identifying these features, we can gain some insight into the behavior of stock prices. We cannot expect much more from our rudimentary model. In any case, a reflexive model cannot take the place of fundamental analysis. All it can do is to provide an ingredient that is missing from it. In principle, the two approaches could be reconciled. Fundamental analysis seeks to establish how underlying values are reflected in stock prices, whereas the theory of reflexivity shows how stock prices can influence underlying values. One provides a static picture, the other a dynamic one. A theory that offers a partial explanation of stock price movements can be very useful to the investor, especially if it illuminates a relationship that other investors fail to grasp. 
Investors operate with limited funds and limited intelligence. They do not need to know everything. As long as they understand something better than others, they have an edge. The trouble with any kind of specialized knowledge is that one's area of expertise may not be especially interesting. But the theory of reflexivity serves to identify historically significant price movements, so it goes right to the heart of the matter. The rudimentary model I have outlined above has proved extremely rewarding in my career as an investor. That may seem surprising because the model is so simple and it fits a well-trodden stock market pattern so well that one would expect every investor to be familiar with it. Yet that is not the case. Why? Part of the answer must be that market participants have been misguided by a different theoretical construction, one derived from classical economics and, even more important, from the natural sciences. The ingrained attitude is that stock prices are the passive reflection of some underlying reality and not an active ingredient in the historical process. This view is simply false. It is remarkable that the error has still not been fully recognized. Nevertheless, investors do recognize the sequence I have described and do respond to it, only they respond later than someone who is working with the appropriate model and is on the lookout for the crucial features that define the shape of the price curve. That is what has given me my edge. The first time I used the model systematically was in the conglomerate boom of the late 1960s. It enabled me to make money both on the way up and on the way down. The key to the conglomerate boom was a prevailing misconception among investors. Investors had come to value growth in per-share earnings and failed to discriminate about the way the earnings growth was accomplished. A few companies learned to produce earnings growth through acquisitions. Once the market started to reward them for their performance, their task became easier because they could offer their own highly priced stock in acquiring other companies. In theory, the process works as follows. Let us assume that all of the companies involved have the same intrinsic growth in earnings, but the stock of the acquiring company sells at twice the earnings multiple of the acquired ones. If the acquiring company manages to double its size, its earnings per share jump by 50%, and its growth rate increases accordingly. In practice, the early conglomerates started out with high intrinsic growth rates that were rewarded by high multiples. Several of the pathbreakers were high-technology companies with a strong defense component whose managements recognized that their historic growth rate could not be sustained indefinitely. Textron, Teledyne, Ling Temco Vought, later LTV, to mention a few. They started to acquire more mundane companies, but as their per-share earnings growth accelerated, the multiples expanded instead of contracting. Their success attracted imitators, and later on even the most humdrum companies could attain a high multiple by going on an acquisition spree. For instance, the bulk of Ogden's earnings was derived from trading scrap metal. Nevertheless, the stock sold at more than 20 times earnings at its peak. Eventually, a company could achieve a high multiple just by promising to put it to good use by making acquisitions. Managements developed special accounting techniques that enhanced the impact of acquisitions. They also introduced changes in the acquired companies, streamlining operations, disposing of assets, and generally focusing on the bottom line. But these changes were less significant than the impact on per-share earnings of the acquisitions themselves. Investors responded. 
At first, the record of each company was judged on its own merit, but gradually conglomerates became recognized as a group. A new breed of investors emerged, the so-called go-go fund managers or gunslingers who developed a special affinity with the managements of conglomerates. Direct lines of communication were opened between them, and conglomerates would place so-called letter stock directly with investors. Eventually, conglomerates learned to manage their stock prices as well as their earnings. Events followed the sequence described in my model. Multiples expanded, and eventually reality could not sustain expectations. More and more people realized the misconception on which the boom rested, even as they continued to play the game. Acquisitions had to get larger and larger in order to maintain the momentum, and in the end they ran into the limits of size. The climactic event was the attempt by Saul Steinberg to acquire Chemical Bank. It was fought and defeated by the establishment. When stock prices started to fall, the decline fed on itself. The favorable impact of acquisitions on per-share earnings diminished, and eventually it became impractical to make new acquisitions. The internal problems that had been swept under the carpet during the period of rapid external growth began to surface. Earnings reports revealed unpleasant surprises. Investors became disillusioned, and managements went through their own crises. After the heady days of success, few were willing to buckle down to the burdens of day-to-day -day management. The situation was aggravated by recession, and many of the high-flying conglomerates literally disintegrated. Investors were prepared to believe the worst, and in some cases the worst actually occurred. In others, reality turned out to be better than expectations, and eventually the situation stabilized, with the surviving companies, often under new management, slowly working themselves out from under the debris. My best documented encounter with a boom-bust sequence is that of real estate investment trusts. REITs, as they are called, are a special corporate form brought into existence by legislation. Their key feature is that they can distribute their income free of corporate taxation, provided they distribute all the income they receive. The opportunity created by this legislation remained largely unexploited until 1969, when a large number of REITs were founded. I was present at the creation and, fresh from my experience with conglomerates, recognized their boom-bust potential. I published a research report, The Case for Mortgage Trusts. My report had an interesting history. It came at a time when go-go fund managers had suffered severe losses in the collapse of the conglomerates. Since they were entitled to share in the profits but did not have to share in the losses of the funds they managed, they were inclined to grasp at anything that held out the prospect of a quick profit. They instinctively understood how a self-reinforcing process works since they had just participated in one and they were anxious to play. The report found a tremendous response, whose extent I realized only when I received a telephone call from a bank in Cleveland asking for a new copy because theirs had gone through so many Xerox incarnations that it was no longer legible. There were only a few mortgage trusts in existence at the time, but the shares were so eagerly sought after that they nearly doubled in price in the space of a month or so. Demand generated supply, and there was a flood of new issues coming to market. When it became clear that the stream of new mortgage trusts was inexhaustible, prices fell almost as rapidly as they had gone up. Obviously, the readers of the report failed to take into account the ease of entry, 
and their mistake was corrected in short order. Nevertheless, their enthusiastic reception helped to get the self-reinforcing process described in the report underway. Subsequent events took the course outlined in the report. Mortgage trust shares enjoyed a boom that was not as violent as the one that followed the publication of the report, but turned out to be more enduring. I had invested heavily in mortgage trusts and took some profits when the reception of my study exceeded my expectations. But I was sufficiently carried away by my own success to be caught in the downdraft with a significant inventory. I hung on and even increased my positions. I followed the industry closely for a year or so and sold my holdings with good profits. Then I lost touch with the group until a few years later when problems began to surface. I was tempted to establish a short position, but was handicapped in that I was no longer familiar with the terrain. Nevertheless, when I reread the report I had written several years earlier, I was persuaded by my own prediction. I decided to sell the group short, more or less indiscriminately. Moreover, as the shares fell, I maintained the same level of exposure by selling additional shares short. My original prediction was fulfilled, and most REITs went broke. The result was that I reaped more than 100% profit on my short positions, a seeming impossibility since the maximum profit on the short position is 100%. The explanation is that I kept on selling additional shares. Self-reinforcing, self-defeating cycles like the conglomerate boom and the REITs do not occur every day. There are long fallow periods when the specialist in such cycles remains unemployed. He need not starve, however. The divergence between underlying trends and investor recognition persists at all times, and the astute investor can take advantage of it. New industries arise or old ones come back into favor. Typically, they are inadequately followed at first. For instance, when defense spending started to rise in the early 1970s after a long decline, there were only two or three analysts left who followed the industry, although it still represented a substantial portion of the economy. Those who were left were too demoralized to recognize the beginning of a major new trend. That was a wonderful time to invest in defense stocks. There were high-tech defense stocks that had never been visited by an analyst, like E-Systems, Inc., and well-established companies that had fallen on evil days trying to diversify out of defense, like Sanders Associates, or getting caught up in scandals trying to sell airplanes through bribery, like Northrop and Lockheed. In the case of defense stocks, there was no self-reinforcing process involved, but investor recognition certainly helped the price of the stocks. Actually, it is a rare case where the investor's bias leaves the fundamentals totally unaffected. Even with defense stocks, the prevailing bias played a role, but it was a negative one. Lockheed had to be bailed out by the government, and companies like Sanders Associates had to restructure their debt by offering convertible bonds at prices that turned out to be very low in retrospect. Only when the negative bias was corrected was there very little further feedback. Companies had little need for additional capital, and managements, having been burned once before, were leery of diversifying out of defense. There were exceptions, like United Aircraft, but investors' bias never turned positive enough to allow a self-reinforcing process to get underway. Many of United Aircraft's acquisitions were for cash, and those that involved stock did not enhance earnings significantly. The result was a larger diversified company, but no boom and bust in the stock. 
Perhaps the most interesting case of negative bias occurred in technology stocks. After the stock market debacle of 1974, investors were leery of any company that needed to raise equity capital from outside sources. Distributed data processing was in the early stages of its development. New companies like Datapoint and Forphase were in the vanguard, with IBM lagging badly. The market was practically exploding, but these little companies were hamstrung by their inability to raise capital. The stocks were selling at very low multiples of anticipated earnings, and the main argument against them was that they would not be able to grow fast enough to meet the demand, and eventually IBM would move into the market. The argument turned out to be valid, but not before these companies became large and prosperous and investors became eager to throw money at them at high multiples. Those who had been willing to fight the negative bias were amply rewarded. As the various niches occupied by these small companies converged to form a large market, most of them were absorbed by larger companies, and those that stayed independent fell on evil days. Datapoint is currently looking for a home at a much reduced multiple. Forphase was recently acquired by Motorola, which proceeded to lose its shirt on it. If the initial market reaction to distributed data processing companies had been more positive, it is possible that some of the early starters might have grown fast enough to survive, just as the earlier wave of microcomputer manufacturers did spawn a few enduring companies like Digital Equipment and Data General. The negative bias of the 1975-1976 period gave way to the opposite extreme. It found expression in a venture capital boom that culminated in the second quarter of 1983. The sequence of events is not as clear-cut as in the case of REITs, but that is only because high technology is not as homogeneous an industry. The same reflexive interaction between stock prices, prevailing bias, and fundamentals can be observed, but much more specific knowledge is required to trace the course of events. The availability of venture capital on attractive terms led to a proliferation of new ventures. Every new company needed equipment as well as inventory, so that electronic equipment manufacturers enjoyed a boom, and so did the manufacturers of products and components. The electronics industry is a large customer of its own products, so that the boom was self-reinforcing. But the proliferation of companies intensified competition. Industry leaders lost their market position as a new generation of products was introduced because the individuals who were responsible for developing them left their companies and set up new ones. Instead of companies growing in step with their industry, the industry grew by the multiplication of companies. Investors failed to recognize this trend. As a result, technology stocks in general and new issues in particular became substantially overvalued. The new issue boom culminated in the second quarter of 1983. When prices started to decline, fewer issues could be sold, and eventually venture capitalists became less venturesome. As fewer companies were formed and the existing ones depleted their cash, the market for technology products softened. Competition intensified and profit margins deteriorated. The process started to feed on itself, and the low point has probably still not been reached. The venture capital boom was not the only cause of the subsequent shakeout. The strong dollar and the rise of Japanese competition were at least as important. But it is clear that stock prices had an impact on the fundamentals in both directions. 
What distinguishes the conglomerate and REIT sequences from the venture capital boom is that in the first two cases, the underlying trend itself was based on the exploitation of the investor's bias, while in the third, it was not. In the case of conglomerates, the idea was to acquire other companies with inflated paper. In the case of REITs, the idea was equity leveraging. The idea behind the latest generation of technology products had nothing to do with the stock market. To understand the ups and downs of technology stocks, we must know something about the underlying trends in technology. In the case of conglomerates and REITs, we need to know little else than the theory of reflexivity. It is important to realize, however, that knowing everything about underlying trends in technology is not sufficient to explain the ups and downs of technology stocks. The reflexive interaction between underlying trends, prevailing biases, and stock prices also needs to be understood. Combining the two kinds of understanding is extremely difficult. Those who want to be familiar with technology must follow the industry closely and continuously. Those who want to exploit the divergence between perception and reality must move from group to group. Most technology experts are ignorant of reflexivity and tend to remain fully invested at all times. Their popularity and influence wax and wane in a reflexive fashion. After the recent decline in technology stocks, a new breed of analysts seems to be emerging who are overly sensitive to the importance of investors' perceptions. After a decent interval, it may be once again profitable to go against the prevailing bias and invest in technology stocks on the basis of fundamental trends. I have always had a lot of difficulty investing in technology stocks because of the specialized knowledge required. Finally, I managed to gain a good insight into the computer industry during the 1975 to 1976 period and profited from the prevailing negative bias. I held on to my positions for a few years, but then I sold them and lost my grip on the industry. In 1981, I made the mistake of not participating in a venture capital fund operated by one of the most successful venture capitalists of the period, in the belief that the boom could not last long enough to allow investors to exit in time. In this, I was undoubtedly influenced by misgivings about the larger picture. In any event, his investors realized a good profit in 1983. By that time, I was totally out of touch with technology stocks, and the boom passed me by. Even the conglomerate and REIT sequences were not totally self-contained. Extraneous developments, such as the level of economic activity, regulation, or specific events, e.g. the attempted takeover of Chemical Bank, played a crucial role in the conglomerate boom. In less pure sequences, the importance of outside influences is even greater. We are currently in the midst of another self-reinforcing, self-defeating cycle that will go down in history as the merger mania of the 1980s. Instead of inflated paper, it is cash that serves as the currency. The scale of transactions already dwarfs the conglomerate boom. Merger mania is but an element of a much larger ongoing historical drama whose ramifications reach far beyond the stock market and involve politics, exchange rates, monetary and fiscal policies, quirks of taxation, international capital movements, and many other developments. I shall make an attempt at unraveling the ongoing historical drama, but that is not as simple as analyzing a more or less self-contained boom-bust sequence. The larger picture is full of reflexive interactions as well as non-reflexive fundamental trends. 
We need a more complex model that allows for the transition from one boom-bust sequence to another and for the coexistence of several reflexive processes at the same time. Before I embark on such an ambitious project, I want to examine another market that is characterized by vicious and benign circles, the currency market. Reflexivity in the currency market While reflexive interactions are intermittent in the stock market, they are continuous in the market for currencies. I shall try to show that freely floating exchange rates are inherently unstable. Moreover, the instability is cumulative so that the eventual breakdown of a freely floating exchange rate system is virtually assured. The traditional view of the currency market is that it tends toward equilibrium. An overvalued exchange rate encourages imports and discourages exports until equilibrium is re-established. Similarly, an improvement in competitive position is reflected in an appreciating exchange rate that reduces the trade surplus so that equilibrium is again re-established. Speculation cannot disrupt the trend toward equilibrium. If speculators anticipate the future correctly, they accelerate the trend. If they misjudge it, they will be penalized by the underlying trend that may be delayed but will inexorably assert itself. Experience since floating exchange rates were introduced in 1973 has disproved this view. Instead of fundamentals determining exchange rates, exchange rates have found a way of influencing the fundamentals. For instance, a strong exchange rate discourages inflation, wages remain stable and the price of imports falls. When exports have a large import component, a country can remain competitive almost indefinitely in spite of a steady appreciation of its currency, as Germany demonstrated in the 1970s. The fact is that the relationship between the domestic inflation rate and the international exchange rate is not unidirectional, but circular. Changes in one may precede changes in the other, but it does not make sense to describe one as the cause and the other as the effect, because they mutually reinforce each other. It is more appropriate to speak of a vicious circle in which the currency depreciates and inflation accelerates, or of a benign circle where the opposite happens. Vicious and benign circles are a far cry from equilibrium. Nevertheless, they could produce a state of affairs akin to equilibrium if the reflexive, mutually self-reinforcing relationship could be sustained indefinitely. But that is not the case. The self-reinforcing process tends to become more vulnerable the longer it lasts, and eventually it is bound to reverse itself, setting in motion a self-reinforcing process in the opposite direction. A complete cycle is characterized by wide fluctuations, not only in the exchange rate, but also in interest rates, inflation, and or the level of economic activity. The participant's bias introduces an element of instability into the system. If the system had an innate tendency toward equilibrium, the participant's bias could not disrupt it. At worst, it could introduce some random, short-term fluctuations. But when the causal connections are reflexive, the participant's bias may engender, sustain, or destroy a vicious or benign circle. Moreover, the prevailing bias takes on a life of its own as one of the constituent parts in a circular relationship. It finds expression in speculative capital movements that may serve as a counterweight to an imbalance in trade, allowing a trade surplus or deficit to exceed, both in size and in duration, the level that could have been sustained in its absence. 
When that happens, speculation becomes a destabilizing influence. International capital movements tend to follow a self-reinforcing, self-defeating pattern similar to the one we identified in the stock market. But the model we used for stock price movements cannot be applied to currency markets without substantial modifications. In the stock market, we focused on the reflexive relationship between two variables, stock prices and a single underlying trend. We were trying to build the simplest possible model, and we were willing to simplify a much more complex reality to serve our purpose. In the currency market, we cannot get by with two variables. Even the simplest model will need seven or eight. Expectations about exchange rates play the same role in currency markets as expectations about stock prices do in the stock market. They constitute the paramount consideration for those who are motivated by the total rate of return. In the stock market, that covers practically all investors. In currency markets, all speculative transactions. In the stock market, we used a model that focused on stock prices and disregarded dividend income. No great distortion was involved, because in the kind of boom-bust sequences we were considering, stock price movements far outweigh dividend income. Similar conditions prevail in currency markets. Expectations about future exchange rates constitute the main motivation in speculative capital transactions. The major difference between the stock market and the currency market seems to be the role played by the fundamentals. We have seen that the fundamentals were rather nebulous even in the case of stocks, but at least we had no reason to doubt that stock prices were somehow connected to the fundamentals. In the case of currencies, the trade balance is clearly the most important fundamental factor. Yet the dollar strengthened between 1982 and 1985, while the trade balance of the United States was deteriorating. It would seem that the fundamentals are even less relevant in determining price trends than in the stock market. We do not need to look far afield for an explanation. It is to be found in the relative importance of speculative capital movements. As we have seen, speculative capital is motivated primarily by expectations about future exchange rates. To the extent that exchange rates are dominated by speculative capital transfers, they are purely reflexive. Expectations relate to expectations, and the prevailing bias can validate itself almost indefinitely. The situation is highly unstable. If the opposite bias prevailed, it could also validate itself. The greater the relative importance of speculation, the more unstable the system becomes. The total rate of return can flip-flop with every change in the prevailing bias. In our discussion of the stock market, we identified certain sequences, such as the conglomerate boom, where the prevailing bias formed an important part of the underlying trend. But we concluded that such pure examples of reflexivity are exceptional. By contrast, in a system of freely fluctuating exchange rates, reflexivity constitutes the rule. Of course, there is no such thing as a purely reflexive situation. Speculation is only one of the factors that determine exchange rates, and the other factors must also be taken into account in formulating one's expectations. Thus, expectations cannot be totally capricious. They must be rooted in something other than themselves. How a prevailing bias becomes established, and, even more important, how it is reversed, are the most important questions confronting us. There are no universally valid answers. 
Reflexive processes tend to follow a certain pattern. In the early stages, the trend has to be self-reinforcing, otherwise the process aborts. As the trend extends, it becomes increasingly vulnerable because the fundamentals, such as trade and interest payments, move against the trend, in accordance with the precepts of classical analysis, and the trend becomes increasingly dependent on the prevailing bias. Eventually, a turning point is reached, and, in a full-fledged sequence, a self-reinforcing process starts operating in the opposite direction. Within this general pattern, each sequence is unique. It is the characteristic feature of a reflexive process that neither the participants' perceptions nor the situation to which they relate remain unaffected by it. It follows that no sequence can repeat itself. Not even the variables that interact in a circular fashion need be the same. Certainly, they will not carry the same weight on different occasions. Although each self-reinforcing circle is unique, we can make some universally valid generalizations about freely fluctuating exchange rates. First, the relative importance of speculative transactions tends to increase during the lifetime of a self-reinforcing trend. Second, the prevailing bias is a trend-following one, and the longer the trend persists, the stronger the bias becomes. The third is simply that once a trend is established, it tends to persist and to run its full course. When the turn finally comes, it tends to set into motion a self-reinforcing process in the opposite direction. In other words, currencies tend to move in large waves, with each move lasting several years. These three tendencies are mutually self-validating. It is the growth in speculative capital flows moving in a trend-following fashion that makes the trend so persistent. It is the persistence of the trend that makes a trend-following bias so rewarding, and it is the rewards reaped by speculation that attract increasing amounts of capital. The longer a benign circle lasts, the more attractive it is to hold financial assets in the appreciating currency, and the more important the exchange rate becomes in calculating total return. Those who are inclined to fight the trend are progressively eliminated, and in the end only trend followers survive as active participants. As speculation gains in importance, other factors lose their influence. There is nothing to guide speculators but the market itself, and the market is dominated by trend followers. These considerations explain how the dollar could continue to appreciate in the face of an ever-rising trade deficit. Eventually, a crossover point would have been reached, even without the intervention of the authorities, when the inflow of speculative funds could not keep pace with the trade deficit and with rising interest obligations, and the trend would have been reversed. Since the predominating bias is trend-following, speculative capital would then have started moving in the opposite direction. If and when that happened, the reversal could easily have accelerated into a freefall. For one thing, speculation and fundamental flows would then have worked in the same direction. Even more important, when a change in trend is recognized, the volume of speculative transactions is likely to undergo a dramatic, not to say catastrophic, increase. While a trend persists, speculative flows are incremental. But a reversal involves not only the current flow, but also the accumulated stock of speculative capital. The longer the trend has persisted, the larger the accumulation. There are, of course, mitigating circumstances. One is that market participants are likely to recognize a change in trend only gradually, 
The other is that the authorities are bound to be aware of the danger and do something to prevent a crash. How the drama actually unfolded will be the subject of a later chapter. Here we are trying to establish a general proposition. Taking the three generalizations together, it can be asserted that speculation is progressively destabilizing. The destabilizing effect arises not because the speculative capital flows must be eventually reversed, but exactly because they need not be reversed until much later. If they had to be reversed in short order, capital transactions would provide a welcome cushion for making the adjustment process less painful. If they need not be reversed, the participants get to depend on them so that eventually when the turn comes, the adjustment becomes that much more painful. It is quite likely that the generalization about the progressive accumulation of hot money holds true not only within a cycle, but also from one cycle to another. Although the history of fluctuating exchange rates is too short to provide reliable evidence. It has certainly been true so far. The size of speculative capital movements was far greater in Reagan's benign circle than it was during Carter's vicious circle. Empirical studies of the 1930s also showed accumulative growth in hot money movements, although circumstances were somewhat different because currencies were not freely floating. We can see why hot money should continue to accumulate as long as real interest rates are high and the return on physical investments low. Keeping capital in liquid form in an appreciating currency is more rewarding than investing it in physical assets. What is needed to give the generalization universal validity is an argument that would show that fluctuating exchange rates are associated with high returns on financial assets and low returns on physical investments. Let me try. We have seen that hot money can earn exceptional returns if it gets the trend right. Since it sets the trend, that is likely to be the case. Physical assets represent the opposite side of the coin. They cannot move to take advantage of the trend. The tradable goods sector is bound to suffer when a currency appreciates. Of course, a depreciating currency brings windfall profits to exporters, but having been hurt before, exporters are loath to invest in the basis of a temporary advantage. They prefer to hold their profits in financial assets, contributing to the growth of hot money. The process can be most clearly observed in the United Kingdom, where exporters refused to expand when sterling fell below $1.10 in 1985, despite record profits. How right they were! Sterling rose above $1.50 by April 1986. Thus, both an appreciating currency and a depreciating currency discourage physical investment and foster the accumulation of hot money. We can attempt yet another tentative generalization. When a long-term trend loses its momentum, short-term volatility tends to rise. It is easy to see why that should be so. The trend-following crowd is disoriented. The generalization is tentative because it is based on inadequate evidence. It certainly was true when the dollar reversed its trend in 1985. If these generalizations are indeed valid, the eventual demise of a system of freely fluctuating exchange rates is inevitable. Fluctuations become so wild that either the system has to be modified by some kind of government intervention, or it is bound to break down. Currency markets thus provide the best support for my contention that financial markets are inherently unstable. There is no built-in tendency toward equilibrium. 
to the extent that we need stability, we must introduce it by deliberate policy measures. These conclusions may not strike the reader as particularly revolutionary at the present time, but they certainly contradicted the prevailing wisdom at the time they were written in April to May 1985. There was widespread malaise about the instability of exchange rates, but belief in the magic of the market was still running strong. And the famous Plaza Agreement in September 1985 came as something of a shock to market participants. Even today, there is no theoretical underpinning for the contention that a freely floating exchange rate system is cumulatively destabilizing. That is what I hope to have provided here. I have been speculating in currencies ever since they started floating, but I have failed to make money on a consistent basis. On balance, I traded profitably through 1980, then chalked up losses between 1981 and 1985. My approach has been tentative, based more on intuition than on conviction. By temperament, I have always been more interested in picking the turning point than in following a trend. I managed to catch both the rise and fall of European currencies against the dollar until 1981, but I traded myself out of my positions too soon. Having lost the trend, I found it too demeaning to start following the trend followers. I tried to pick the reversal point instead needless to say, without success. I had some temporary profits in the early part of 1984, but I gave them all back. I was again engaged in a speculation against the dollar at the time I wrote this chapter. Writing it has undoubtedly helped to clarify my thoughts. Admittedly, the theory is far too abstract to be of much use in making concrete predictions. Specifically, the turning point cannot be determined until it has actually occurred. But as we shall see, the theory can be very useful in interpreting events as they unfold. The Credit and Regulatory Cycle There seems to be a special affinity between reflexivity and credit. That is hardly surprising. Credit depends on expectations. Expectations involve bias. Hence, credit is one of the main avenues that permit bias to play a causal role in the course of events. But there is more to it. Credit seems to be associated with a particular kind of reflexive pattern that is known as boom and bust. The pattern is asymmetrical. The boom is drawn out and accelerates gradually. The bust is sudden and often catastrophic. By contrast, when credit is not an essential ingredient in a reflexive process, the pattern tends to be more symmetrical. For instance, in the currency market, it does not seem to make much difference whether the dollar is rising or falling the exchange rate seems to follow a wave-like pattern. I believe the asymmetry rises out of a reflexive connection between loan and collateral. In this context, I give collateral a very broad definition. It will denote whatever determines the creditworthiness of a debtor, whether it is actually pledged or not. It may mean a piece of property or an expected future stream of income. In either case, it is something on which the lender is willing to place a value. Valuation is supposed to be a passive relationship in which the value reflects the underlying asset, but in this case, it involves a positive act. A loan is made. The act of lending may affect the collateral value. That is the connection that gives rise to a reflexive process. It will be recalled that we have analyzed reflexivity as two connections working in opposite directions. 
the normal connection where a value is placed on future events, as in the stock market or banking. We have called it the cognitive function. And a perverse connection in which expectations affect that which is expected. We have called it the participating function. The participating function is perverse because its effect is not always felt, and when it does operate, its influence is so difficult to disentangle that it tends to go unrecognized. The prevailing view of how financial markets operate tends to leave the participating function out of account. For instance, in the international lending boom, bankers did not recognize that the debt ratios of borrowing countries were favorably influenced by their own lending activity. In the conglomerate boom, Investors did not realize that per-share earnings growth can be affected by the valuation they place on it. At present, most people do not realize that the erosion of collateral values can depress the economy. The act of lending usually stimulates economic activity. It enables the borrower to consume more than he would otherwise or invest in productive assets. There are exceptions, to be sure. If the assets in question are not physical but financial ones, the effect is not necessarily stimulative. By the same token, debt service has a depressing impact. Resources that would otherwise be devoted to consumption or the creation of a future stream of income are withdrawn. As the total amount of debt outstanding accumulates, the portion that has to be utilized for debt service increases. It is only net new lending that stimulates, and total new lending has to keep rising in order to keep net new lending stable. The connection between lending and economic activity is far from straightforward. That is, in fact, the best justification for the monetarist's preoccupation with money supply to the neglect of credit. The major difficulty is that credit need not be involved in the physical production or consumption of goods and services. It may be used for purely financial purposes. In this case, its influence on economic activity becomes problematic. For purposes of this discussion, it may be helpful to distinguish between a real economy and a financial economy. Economic activity takes place in the real economy, while the extension and repayment of credit occur in the financial economy. The reflexive interaction between the act of lending and the value of the collateral may then connect the real and the financial economy, or it may be confined to the financial economy. Here we shall focus on the first case. A strong economy tends to enhance the asset values and income streams that serve to determine creditworthiness. In the early stages of a reflexive process of credit expansion, the amount of credit involved is relatively small, so that its impact on collateral values is negligible. That is why the expansionary phase is slow to start with, and credit remains soundly based at first. But as the amount of debt accumulates, total lending increases in importance and begins to have an appreciable effect on collateral values. The process continues until a point is reached where total credit cannot increase fast enough to continue stimulating the economy. By that time, collateral values have become greatly dependent on the stimulative effect of new lending, and as new lending fails to accelerate, collateral values begin to decline. The erosion of collateral values has a depressing effect on economic activity, which in turn reinforces the erosion of collateral values. Since the collateral has been pretty fully utilized at that point, a decline may precipitate the liquidation of loans, which in turn makes the decline more precipitous. That is the anatomy of a typical boom and bust. 
Booms and busts are not symmetrical because, at the inception of a boom, both the volume of credit and the value of the collateral are at a minimum. At the time of the bust, both are at a maximum. But there is another factor at play. The liquidation of loans takes time. The faster it has to be accomplished, the greater the effect on the value of the collateral. In a bust, the reflexive interaction between loans and collateral becomes compressed within a very short time frame, and the consequences can be catastrophic. It is the sudden liquidation of accumulated positions that gives a bust such a different shape from the preceding boom. It can be seen that the boom-bust sequence is a particular variant of reflexivity. Booms can arise whenever there is a two-way connection between values and the act of valuation. The act of valuation takes many forms. In the stock market, it is equity that is valued. In banking, it is collateral. It is possible, although unlikely, that a boom could be generated without any credit expansion. The two examples we studied in the stock market, the REIT and conglomerate booms, could, in theory, have unfolded without the stocks being used as collateral, although in practice there was a lot of credit involved. In the absence of credit, the reversal would be a more gradual process. The contraction would not be a mirror image of the expansion, for the reason mentioned earlier. The reflexive element in valuations is greater at the time of reversal than at the inception of a trend but the compression that is characteristic of busts would be absent. Both the boom-bust pattern and its explanation are almost too obvious to be interesting. The amazing thing is that the reflexive connection between lending and collateral has not been generally recognized. There is an enormous literature on the trade cycle, but I have not seen much awareness of the reflexive relationship described here. Moreover, the trade cycles that are generally discussed in textbooks differ in duration from the credit cycle I am discussing here. They are short-term fluctuations within a larger pattern. There is an awareness of a larger cycle, usually referred to as the Kondratiev wave, but it has never been scientifically explained. At present, there is much concern that we may be approaching another recession, but the general assumption is that we are dealing with a recession just like any other. The fact that we are in the declining phase of the larger cycle is usually left out of account. I contend that all previous recessions since the end of World War II occurred while credit was expanding, while the one we may or may not be facing now would occur when borrowing capacity in the real economy is contracting. This creates a situation that has no precedent in recent history. Exactly where we are in the larger cycle is difficult to determine. I must confess I have been confused on the issue since 1982. The reason for my confusion is that while the boom has clearly run out of steam, the bust has not taken place. Busts can be very disruptive, especially if the liquidation of collateral causes a sudden compression of credit. The consequences are so unpleasant that strenuous efforts are made to avoid them. The institution of central banking has evolved in a continuing attempt to prevent sudden, catastrophic contractions in credit. Since a panic is hard to arrest once it has started, prevention is best practiced in the expansionary phase. That is why the role of central banks has gradually expanded to include the regulation of the money supply. That is also why organized financial markets regulate the ratio of collateral to credit. Until now, the authorities have been able to prevent a bust. 
we find ourselves in a twilight zone where the normal process of credit expansion culminated long ago, but the normal process of credit contraction has been prevented by the authorities. We are in uncharted territory because the actions of the authorities have no precedent. The fact that banks and organized financial markets are regulated complicates the course of events tremendously. Financial history is best interpreted as a reflexive process in which there are two sets of participants instead of one, competitors and regulators. Such a system is much more complex than the case we studied in the stock market. There, the regulatory environment was more or less fixed. It was the backdrop against which the drama was acted out. Here, the regulatory environment is an integral part of the process. It is important to realize that the regulators are also participants. There is a natural tendency to regard them as superhuman beings who somehow stand outside and above the economic process and intervene only when the participants have made a mess of it. That is not the case. They also are human, all too human. They operate with imperfect understanding and their activities have unintended consequences. Indeed, they seem to adjust to changing circumstances less well than those who are motivated by profit and loss, so that regulations are generally designed to prevent the last mishap, not the next one. The deficiencies of regulation tend to be more noticeable when conditions are rapidly changing, and conditions tend to change more rapidly when the economy is less regulated. We begin to discern a reflexive relationship between the regulators and the economy they regulate. It gives rise to a process that takes place concurrently with the process of credit expansion and contraction and interacts with it. It is no wonder that the result is so complex and perplexing. The regulatory cycle does not have the asymmetric character of the credit cycle. It seems to fit the wave pattern we developed for the currency market better than the boom and bust pattern of the credit cycle. Just as freely floating currencies tend to fluctuate between over- and undervaluation, so market economies tend to fluctuate between over- and under-regulation. The length of the cycle seems to be correlated with the credit cycle, and one can sense intuitively why that should be so. Credit expansion and contraction have much to do with changes in the economy, which in turn have a bearing on the adequacy of regulations. Conversely, the regulatory environment influences not only how fast credit can expand, but also how far. Clearly, there is a two-way connection between credit and regulation, but it is far from clear to me at this stage of the investigation what pattern, if any, the interaction follows. That is the main source of my confusion. We have identified a credit cycle that follows a boom-bust pattern a regulatory cycle that is more wave-like and an interplay between the two whose pattern is unclear. There are, of course, many secular developments involved as well, some of which relate to credit, some to regulation, and some to both. We have mentioned that central banks tend to get stronger after each crisis. That is a secular development that renders each cycle unique. In the Great Depression, both the banking system and the international trading system collapsed, making the contraction of credit and economic activity much more severe than it would have been otherwise. We can be certain that every effort will be made to avoid a similar collapse in this cycle. We did not dwell on the information revolution or on the improvements in transportation that have helped the development of an integrated world economy. The outcome of all these influences is a unique course of events that is easier to explain than to predict.
Looked at from this perspective, the entire post-war period is part of a large expansionary boom that is now well advanced and ripe for a bust. The bust has been avoided, however, by the intervention of the authorities at crucial moments. The same post-war period has also seen an almost complete swing from government regulation to unrestrained competition. We are now at a curious moment where the bias in favor of deregulation is still on the rise, yet the need for government intervention in specific areas is beginning to reassert itself. The banking industry, for one, is already on the way to becoming more regulated. One could try and write a history of the post-war era in these terms. The present credit cycle started after the end of World War II. The origins of the regulatory cycle go back even farther to the New Deal, although the creation of the Bretton Woods system can be taken as the starting point as far as the world economy is concerned. The expansion that followed was intimately related to the removal of restrictions on international trade and investment. But international capital movements created problems for the Bretton Woods system that were never anticipated and remain unresolved. I shall not attempt to present the complete story here. I shall start at the point where I became actively involved, and I shall follow the path of my own involvement. This will give the investigation a more experimental character. My experience began after the breakdown of the system of fixed exchange rates in 1973. Relationships that had been fixed became subject to reflexive influences, and my interest veered from specific companies and industries to macroeconomic processes. My study of growth banks in 1972 constituted a transition point, although I did not know it at the time. With the passage of time, I found the instability of macroeconomic trends increasingly disturbing in both a subjective and an objective sense, and I decided to distance myself from active investing in 1981. After the crisis of 1982, I made a theoretical study of the international debt problem, I was under the mistaken impression that the crisis of 1982 constituted the climax in the process of credit expansion. I thought that the authorities were not doing enough to prevent a bust. I failed to realize that they were doing too much. They actually kept credit expanding, albeit on a more unsound basis than ever. The United States replaced less developed countries as the borrower of last resort, and commercial banks tried to grow their way out of the loans made to less developed countries by aggressively expanding in other directions. This led to another series of crises in 1984 that constituted the real turning point for the banking and thrift industries. We are now suffering from the after-effects of that climax. The United States government continues to borrow on an ever-increasing scale, but here too a turning point is at hand. The dollar has begun to decline and foreigners are going to be repaid in a depreciating currency. Perhaps the last great engine of credit creation that is still going full blast is in the stock market, where merger mania is at its peak, but it does not have a stimulating effect on the real economy. The theoretical framework of an interrelated credit and regulatory cycle became somewhat clearer to me in the course of writing this book, although I cannot claim that the process of clarification is complete. The Scope for Financial Alchemy, an Evaluation of the Experiment In evaluating my approach, we must distinguish between its ability to produce profits in financial markets and its ability to predict the future course of events. The fact that the distinction is necessary has far-reaching implications. 
My financial success stands in stark contrast with my ability to forecast events. In this context, we must distinguish between events in financial markets and events in the real world. Events in financial markets determine financial success. Events in the real world are relevant only in evaluating the scientific merit of my approach. Even in predicting financial markets, my record is less than impressive. The best that can be said for it is that my theoretical framework enables me to understand the significance of events as they unfold, although the record is less than spotless. One would expect a successful method to yield firm predictions. But all my forecasts are extremely tentative and subject to constant revision in the light of market developments. Occasionally, I develop some conviction, and when I do, the payoff can be substantial. But even then, there is never-present danger that the course of events fails to correspond to my expectations. My approach works not by making valid predictions, but by allowing me to correct false ones. With regard to events in the real world, my record is downright dismal. The outstanding feature of my predictions is that I keep on expecting developments that do not materialize. How can financial success and predictive failure be reconciled? That is the question I shall address in this chapter. But before I do so, I must remind the reader why it arises in the first place. My decision-making process was greatly influenced by personal factors, such as my presence or absence from the office. The fact that the monetary results served as a possible criterion of the validity of my ideas made me try harder than I would have otherwise. This is borne out by the fact that my understanding was much hazier and my moves in the market more tentative during the control period than they were at the height of the experiment. Such haziness is quite common. It is the sharp focus that I managed to attain in the course of the experiment that is rather exceptional. I was greatly helped by the discipline of having to write down my thoughts. My arguments may not strike the reader as particularly well organized, but they are certainly more consistent than they would have been if I had not taken the trouble to formulate them in writing. I was also inspired by the fact that I was able to combine the two great abiding interests in my life, philosophical speculation and speculation in financial markets. Both seemed to benefit from the combination. Together they engaged me more than either one on its own. The other consideration has to do with external events. For instance, I recall the time, in 1981-82, when the Federal Reserve sought to control the quantity of money and allowed market forces to set interest rates. The market for government bonds, and to a lesser extent for stocks and currencies, became like a casino. And my approach of formulating hypotheses and testing them against the market became worse than useless. By the time I recognized a market trend and formulated a hypothesis to explain it, the trend had already changed, and I had to find a new hypothesis. The result was that I was always lagging behind the market and kept on getting whipsawed until I abandoned the hopeless struggle and delegated the task of gambling in government bond futures to someone more qualified. I found a computer-based speculator, Victor Niederhofer, who had developed a system using the assumption that the market is a casino. He operated successfully until the international debt crisis of 1982 changed the nature of the game. He had the rare fortitude to close the account before he had lost all the money he had made for me previously. I could argue that an approach which allows me to recognize when it does not work is a valid approach, 
Still, it is somehow more convincing to demonstrate it at a juncture when it does work. These two considerations go a long way toward explaining my financial success. I have never claimed scientific status for my theoretical framework. On the contrary, I have argued that reflexive processes cannot be predicted by scientific method, and the real-time experiment was a deliberate attempt to explore an alternative method. To bring the point home, I have described the alternative method as alchemy. Scientific method seeks to understand things as they are, while alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. To put it another way, the primary objective of science is the truth, that of alchemy, operational success. In the sphere of natural phenomena, there is no distinction between the two objectives. Nature obeys laws that operate independently of whether they are understood or not. The only way man can bend nature to his will is by understanding and applying these laws. That is why alchemy has failed and natural science reigns supreme. But social phenomena are different. They have thinking participants. Events do not obey laws that operate independently of what anybody thinks. On the contrary, the participant's thinking is an integral part of the subject matter. This creates an opening for alchemy that was absent in the sphere of natural science. Operational success can be achieved without attaining scientific knowledge. By the same token, scientific method is rendered just as ineffectual in dealing with social events as alchemy was in altering the character of natural substances. My approach is more successful in dealing with financial markets than with the real world. The reason for it readily suggests itself. Financial markets themselves function imperfectly as a mechanism for predicting events in the real world. There is always a divergence between prevailing expectations and the actual course of events. Financial success depends on the ability to anticipate prevailing expectations and not real-world developments. But as we have seen, my approach rarely produces firm predictions even about the future course of financial markets. It is only a framework for understanding the course of events as they unfold. If it has any validity, it is because the theoretical framework corresponds to the way that financial markets operate. That means that the markets themselves can be viewed as formulating hypotheses about the future and then submitting them to the test of the actual course of events. The hypotheses that survive the test are reinforced. Those that fail are discarded. The main difference between me and the markets is that markets seem to engage in a process of trial and error without the participants fully understanding what is going on, while I do it consciously. Presumably, that is why I can do better than the market. If this view is correct, financial markets bear a curious resemblance to scientific method. Both involve the testing of hypotheses. But there is a fundamental difference. In science, testing serves to establish the truth. In financial markets, the criterion is operational success. In contradistinction with natural science, the two criteria do not coincide. How could they? Market prices always express a prevailing bias, whereas natural science works with an objective criterion. Scientific theories are judged by the facts. Financial decisions are judged by the distorted views of the participants. Instead of scientific method, financial markets embody the method of alchemy. This interpretation of financial markets as a mechanism for testing hypotheses by alchemy is both novel and challenging. The fact that it is not generally accepted adds to the challenge. How can markets be testing something when the participants don't know what they are doing? 
The answer is to be found in the results they achieve. Try to propound an unformulated hypothesis and you get a hit-or-miss result. By contrast, when you deliberately formulate your hypotheses, you can consistently outperform the market averages, provided your specific predictions are not too far off the mark. Treating the market as a mechanism for testing hypotheses seems to be an effective hypothesis. It produces results that are better than a random walk. This conclusion validates the approach I have taken over a strictly scientific one. If we abide by the methods of natural science, we arrive at the random walk theory. The hypotheses that are being tested have to be disregarded because they do not constitute facts, and what we are left with is a jumble of haphazard price fluctuations. On the other hand, if we look at the situation from the inside, from the vantage point of a participant, we discover a process of trial and error. It is not easy to make sense of the process. Many people participate only with a vague idea of what is going on, and I must confess that the sensation of being on a random walk is not unfamiliar to me. My attempts at formulating conjectures about the future work only intermittently. Oftentimes, all I get is white noise. But when I succeed in formulating a worthwhile conjecture, the results can be very rewarding. Markets provide the criterion by which investment decisions are judged. Moreover, they play a causal role in shaping the course of events. The information is more readily available than events in the real world. Hence, the market action offers the most convenient feedback mechanism by which one's expectations can be evaluated. One need not regard the market as always right in order to use it in that capacity. Indeed, if one believes that the market is always right, there is little to be gained from having a feedback mechanism because the prospect of outperforming the market becomes a matter of pure chance. The contention of classical economic theory that the market mechanism assures the optimum allocation of resources is false. Its true merit is that it provides a criterion by which the participants can recognize their own misconceptions. But it is important to realize what kind of criterion the market provides. Far from being always right, it always incorporates the prevailing bias. If participants labor under the misapprehension that the market is always right, the feedback they get is misleading. Indeed, the belief in efficient markets renders markets more unstable by short-circuiting the corrective process that would occur if participants recognize that markets are always biased. The more the theory of efficient markets is believed, the less efficient the markets become. How good are financial markets in predicting real-world developments? Reading the record, it is striking how many calamities that I anticipated did not in fact materialize. The financial markets must have come to reflect the same concerns. Otherwise, my false expectations could not have proven so rewarding. This raises an interesting possibility. Perhaps some of the developments I predicted were preempted by the very fact that they were anticipated by the market and the market provoked a reaction that prevented them from happening. This seems to hold true of the collapse of the banking system and of the collapse of the dollar, and also of the bull market of our lifetime, which was to be followed by a crash, 1929 style. The monetary authorities became so concerned about the excessive buoyancy of financial markets that in the end they refused to supply the excess liquidity that would create a speculative bubble. Their action was neither deliberate nor unanimous. In the U.S., Volcker was opposed to providing excess liquidity, but he was defeated in the Open Market Committee 
and had to appeal to Germany to join in a round of interest rate reductions. When Secretary Baker pushed for another round, the Germans balked and the resulting row almost wrecked the Group of Five process. The Japanese devised their own medicine, but by the time it took effect, the speculative bubble was sufficiently developed to precipitate a more or less full-scale bust in the Japanese stock market. No wonder I had difficulty in recognizing the premature demise of the bull market of a lifetime. It is possible that the United States will continue to create excess liquidity, but I consider it unlikely that it will cause a speculative bubble because the confidence has been too badly shaken. It is more likely that investors would flee to liquidity and gold. When I finally recognized that markets can preempt the catastrophes they predict, I concluded that we live in an age of self-defeating prophecies. The collapse of oil prices does not seem to fit the argument because it actually occurred. But that may be attributed to the fact that either I or the authorities have misjudged its dire consequences. I expected such severe repercussions on the banking system and on the economy as to make a levy on imported oil indispensable, while we seem to have gotten along fine without it. In the end, it was left to OPEC to pull itself together. The present arrangement is no more permanent than the Group of Five process. The drama has yet to be played out in both cases. This line of argument opens up a fascinating vista. I may have discovered not just a reasonably effective way of operating in financial markets, but an actual model of how the financial markets operate in the real world. Models currently in use are based on the misconception that markets can only foreshadow events, they cannot shape them. My approach recognizes that financial markets can also precipitate or abort future events. Following this line of argument, it is possible that we have indeed been teetering on the verge of both a deflationary spiral and a free fall of the dollar, not to mention all sorts of other financial calamities, and we have been saved from them only because of the danger signals emitted by the financial markets. In other words, financial markets constantly anticipate events, both on the positive and on the negative side, which fail to materialize exactly because they have been anticipated. No wonder that financial markets get so excited in anticipating events that seem quite harmless in retrospect. It is an old joke that the stock market has predicted seven of the last two recessions. We can now understand why that should be so. By the same token, financial crashes tend to occur only when they are unexpected. This last point should not be overstated. There are many events that actually occur in spite of the fact that they were widely anticipated. The collapse in oil prices is a case in point. The outbreak of the Second World War was another. It has become fashionable to be a contrarian, but to bet against prevailing expectations is far from safe. It will be recalled that, in the boom-bust model, events tend to reinforce prevailing expectations most of the time and contradict them only at the inflection points. And inflection points are notoriously difficult to identify. Now that the contrarian viewpoint has become the prevailing bias, I have become a confirmed anti-contrarian. Free Markets versus Regulation It is almost redundant to criticize the concept of equilibrium any further. In the first chapter, I asserted that the concept is a hypothetical one, whose relevance to the real world is open to question. In subsequent chapters, I examined various financial markets as well as macroeconomic developments and showed that they exhibit no tendency towards equilibrium. Indeed, it makes more sense to claim that markets tend toward excesses, 
which sooner or later become unstable so that they are eventually corrected. Equilibrium is supposed to ensure the optimum allocation of resources. If markets do not tend towards equilibrium, the main argument that has been used in favor of the market mechanism loses its validity. We have no grounds for believing that markets optimize anything. This may sound like a startling conclusion, but it falls far short of that. The concept of an optimum is just as alien to a world in which participants function without the benefit of perfect knowledge as the concept of an equilibrium, and for the same reason. Both concepts presuppose perfect knowledge, so it is not at all surprising if both of them are shown to have little relevance to the real world. There are other arguments that can be advanced in favor of the market mechanism. I interpreted financial markets as a process that is somewhat akin to scientific method. That is to say, a process of trial and error in which the market price at the termination of the experiment serves as a criterion by which the experiment can be judged. The criterion does not meet the requirements of scientific method because the market price is not independent of the participants' decisions in the way in which the events studied by natural scientists are independent of the statements that scientists make about them. Nevertheless, it is a useful criterion because it is just as real and just as amenable to scientific observation as any natural phenomenon. Moreover, it is of vital interest to market participants. Thus, the market mechanism has the merit of providing an objective criterion, albeit a biased one. How great that merit is we can appreciate only when we consider what happens in its absence. For that purpose, we must look at centrally planned economies which, in revulsion against the deficiencies of market economies, have eschewed the use of the pricing mechanism. Output has to be measured in physical quantities, and the distortions are far worse than the excesses of the market. Winston Churchill once said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. The same can be said about the market mechanism. It is the worst system of allocating resources, except for all the others. Indeed, there are significant similarities between the election mechanism and the market mechanism. It would be difficult to argue that elections optimize the political leadership of a country. The skills needed to attract votes bear little relevance to the qualities a candidate is going to need once he is in office. Nevertheless, the very fact that he has to run for election imposes a discipline which helps prevent some of the more egregious excesses. The value of an objective criterion is perhaps best appreciated subjectively. We all live in a fantasy world. Having an affinity for abstract ideas, I am perhaps more apt to be carried away into a world of my own creation than many other people. The markets have always helped to preserve my sense of reality. It may seem paradoxical that my sense of reality should be rooted in the markets when markets often behave so strangely that they strike other onlookers as unreal. Yet as a market participant, I am not merely aware of being connected to reality. I actually feel it in my guts. I react to events in the marketplace as an animal reacts to events in the jungle. For instance, I used to be able to anticipate an impending disaster because it manifested itself in the form of a backache. I was, of course, unable to tell what shape the disaster would take. By the time I could identify it, my backache would dissolve. There was a time when my involvement with the market was all-embracing, much to the detriment of my relationships with human beings. Now that I have managed to distance myself, my market sense has suffered. Events often reach me as white noise. I cannot make sense of them. 
For instance, during the real-time experiment, market developments had sharp contours. During the control period, the outlines became more blurred. It is interesting to observe how my market involvement relates to my ability to organize abstract ideas. One would think that being active in the market would interfere with writing, but the opposite seems to be the case. The discipline of having to make investment decisions prevents me from getting too far divorced from reality. During the three years that I was writing The Burden of Consciousness, I lost my ability to make money in the stock market, and eventually I got lost in my own abstractions. Again, during the three years when I was trying to make sense of the international high pitch. I mention this because it may have more than subjective relevance. Had I been an academic, I could have persisted with my analysis of the debt problem, and if reality failed to conform to my expectations, I could have defended my analysis by blaming extraneous developments. Eventually, some of my expectations were fulfilled, albeit with a delay of several years. As a market-oriented man, I found such a delay intolerable, and I felt obliged to search for and to recognize the flaws in my argument. As an academic, I could have claimed to be vindicated. The point I am trying to make is that the market is a harder taskmaster than academic debate. Yet it is easy to exaggerate the merits of having an objective criterion at our disposal. We have become so fixated on objective criteria that we are inclined to endow them with a value they do not intrinsically possess. Profit, the bottom line, efficiency, takes on the aspect of an end in itself instead of being a means to an end. We tend to measure every activity by the amount of money it brings. Artists are valued according to the price their products sell for. What is worse, we often want to make a profit from activities that ought to be otherwise motivated. Politicians want to earn lecture fees and sell their memoirs. White House aides become lobbyists. Generals in charge of procurement angle for lucrative jobs in industry, and so do lawyers working for regulatory agencies. The profit motive has become so all-embracing that we find it hard to accept when someone is motivated by considerations other than profit. Values that motivate people cannot be readily translated into objective terms, and exactly because individual values are so confusing, we have elevated profit and material wealth, which can be readily measured in terms of money, into some kind of supreme value. Surely that is an exaggeration. The fact is that in a world of imperfect understanding, there is some kind of exaggeration or bias involved in every value. In our civilization, the value of profit is exaggerated, and so is the value of objectivity. Let us take a closer look at the kind of criterion market prices provide. The distinction we have drawn between scientific method and alchemy will come in useful. I have argued that in the study of social phenomena, we need to distinguish between two kinds of validity— one associated with truth, the other with effectiveness. In natural science, the distinction is missing. Theories are effective only if they are true. That is why alchemy does not work. Following this line of thought, we can argue that the market price provides a criterion of effectiveness, but not a criterion of truth. Future market prices will determine how the various participants fare, but they will not determine whether their understanding is correct. Only if market prices tend towards an equilibrium would the two criteria merge. The market price would then be the correct price. We can see now how important the concept of equilibrium is. It serves as a bridge between natural and social science and eliminates the disturbing dichotomy between truth and effectiveness that characterizes the study of social phenomena. 
Unfortunately, the bridge does not stand up because imperfect understanding renders the concept of equilibrium inappropriate. Without an innate tendency towards equilibrium, the course of events cannot be determined by scientific method, but it can be shaped by the methods of alchemy. The attempt to transpose the methods and criteria of natural science to the social sphere is unsustainable. It gives rise to inflated expectations that cannot be fulfilled. These expectations go far beyond the immediate issue of scientific knowledge and color our entire way of thinking. The belief that economic policy ought to aim at the optimum allocation of resources has dominated political thought and political action since the middle of the 19th century. Those on the left wanted the state to take charge of the allocation. Those on the right wanted to leave it to the market mechanism. Under the influence of Marxism, the pursuit of the optimum led to the total abandonment of the market mechanism in large parts of the world. Even in market-oriented economies, the state was given a large role in correcting the imperfections of the market mechanism. Gradually, the harmful side effects of state intervention have become increasingly evident, and the prevailing bias has swung back in favor of free markets. We are quite willing to recognize the fallacy in Marxism, but we are much less inclined to admit that the theory of perfect competition is imbued with a similar fallacy. Both are built on the assumption of perfect knowledge. In one case, the assumption produces market equilibrium. In the other, it finds expression in an unconditional prediction of the course of history. It is worth pointing out that both theories originated in the 19th century, when the limitations of knowledge were not yet recognized and science reigned supreme. Once we recognize that the optimum is unattainable, we are in a better position to evaluate the merits and shortcomings of the market mechanism. I do not want to get involved in the problems connected with the distribution of wealth, not because I do not consider them important, but only because my analysis has little to contribute to the subject. I want to focus on one particular weakness of the market mechanism, its innate instability. Its cause has been identified. It derives from the two-way connection between thinking and reality that I have labeled reflexivity. It is not in operation in all markets at all times, but if and when it occurs, there is no limit to how far away both perceptions and events can move from anything that could be considered equilibrium. Instability is not necessarily harmful. Indeed, if it were described as dynamic adjustment, it would sound positively benign. But carried to extremes, it can give rise to sudden reversals that may take on catastrophic proportions. That is particularly the case where credit is involved, because the liquidation of collateral can lead to sudden compression of market prices. The prevention of excessive instability is therefore a necessary condition for the smooth functioning of the market mechanism. It is not a condition that the market mechanism can ensure on its own. On the contrary, I have presented evidence that unregulated financial markets tend to become progressively more unstable. The evidence is most clear-cut in the currency markets, but it is also quite persuasive with regard to the expansion and contraction of credit. Whether stock markets would prove inherently unstable if there were no credit involved remains an open question, because stock market booms are always associated with credit expansion. Excessive instability can be prevented only by some sort of regulation. How much instability is excessive is a matter of judgment. Standards vary with time. The degree of dislocation we are willing to tolerate today, as measured by unemployment figures, would have seemed inconceivable a few decades ago when the memories of the Great Depression were still fresh and the drawbacks of full employment policies less evident. 
Similarly, the restrictions on corporate restructuring have been greatly relaxed between the conglomerate boom of the 1960s and the merger mania of the 1980s. The trouble with regulation is that the regulators are also human and apt to err. In order to avoid arbitrary behavior and abuse of power, rules and regulations need to be fixed in advance, and it is difficult to devise regulations that are flexible enough to meet all contingencies. Regulations tend to be rigid and to hinder innovation. The rigidities and distortions they introduce tend to be just as cumulative as the instability of an unregulated market. Income taxes provide a good example. The steeper the rates and the longer they stay in effect, the more widespread the tax avoidance and the more complex the tax code. I do not want to keep the discussion at such a high level of generality much longer, because it can easily deteriorate into empty phrases. I shall try to make some policy suggestions in the next chapter. Here I want to make only one general point. Both regulation and unrestrained competition can be harmful when carried to extremes. But the failure of one extreme is no justification for turning to the other. The two extremes should be treated not as alternatives, but as limits within which the right balance needs to be struck. The task is complicated by our innate tendency to be biased in one direction or the other. In The Burden of Consciousness, written some 25 years ago, I developed a rather elaborate scheme along these lines. I took the rate of change as my critical variable, and I argued that people, with their imperfect understanding, are bound to exaggerate it in one direction or the other. One extreme yields a traditional or a dogmatic mode of thinking according to which the existing arrangements have to be accepted as they are because it is inconceivable that they should be otherwise. The other extreme produces a critical mode of thinking in which everything is considered possible until disproved. Each mode of thinking is linked with a form of social organization which corresponds to it with the degree of imperfection that is appropriate to the imperfect understanding of the participants. In this way, the traditional mode of thinking is associated with tribal society, the dogmatic mode with totalitarian society, and the critical mode with open society. Needless to say, I was very much under the influence of Karl Popper. I opted for open society, but the choice was not without qualification. Each form of social organization was found wanting in something that could be found only in its opposite. Totalitarian society lacked freedom. Open society lacked stability. But given our innate bias, a stable equilibrium between the two is just as unlikely to be attained as a stable equilibrium in a free market. Sentiment is likely to swing in one direction or the other. After nearly half a century of what now appears as excessive regulation, we have been moving towards excessive deregulation. The sooner we recognize that some kind of regulation is necessary in order to maintain stability, the better our chances of preserving the benefits of a nearly free market system. The Paradox of Systemic Reform I have provided the outlines not only of a viable international financial system, but also of a viable economic policy for the United States. It is no more than a sketch or a vision, but it could be elaborated to cover other aspects that I have not touched upon here. Two fundamental problems present themselves. One is abstract, and the other is personal. The abstract problem concerns all attempts at systemic reform. Given our inherently imperfect understanding, isn't there a paradox in systemic reform? How can we hope to design an internally consistent system? 
The personal problem concerns my aversion to bureaucracy. An international central bank would make bureaucracy inescapable. I believe the paradox of systemic reform is spurious, but it needs to be dealt with. Only if one could demand permanent and perfect solutions would it have any validity. But it follows from our imperfect understanding that permanent and perfect solutions are beyond our reach. Life is temporary. Only death is permanent. It makes a great deal of difference how we live our lives. Temporary solutions are much better than none at all. There is a great temptation to insist on a permanent solution. To understand its source, we must consider the meaning of life and death. The fear of death is one of the most deeply felt human emotions. We find the idea of death totally unacceptable and we grasp at any straw to escape it. The striving for permanence and perfection is just one of the ways in which we seek to escape death. It happens to be a deception. Far from escaping the idea of death, we embrace it. Permanence and perfection are death. I have thought about the meaning of life and death long and hard, and I have come up with a formulation that I have found personally satisfying. I shall sum it up here, although I realize that it may not be as meaningful to others as it is to me. The key is to distinguish between the fact of death and the idea of death. The fact of death is linked with the fact of life, whereas the idea of death stands in juxtaposition with the idea of consciousness. Consciousness and death are irreconcilable, but life and death are not. In other words, the fact of death need not be as terrifying as the idea. The idea of death is overpowering. In terms of death, life and everything connected with it lose all significance. But the idea of death is only an idea, and the correspondence between facts and ideas is less than perfect. It would be a mistake to equate the idea and the fact. As far as facts are concerned, the clear and present fact is that we are alive. Death as a fact looms in the distance, but when we reach it, it will not be the same as the idea we have of it now. In other words, our fear of death is unlikely to be validated by the event. In thinking about life and death, we have a choice. We can take life or death as our starting point. The two are not mutually exclusive. Both need to be dealt with, as a fact and as a thought. But the point of view we adopt tends to favor one or the other. The bias we develop permeates all aspects of our thinking and existence. There are civilizations, like that of the Egyptians, that seem to be devoted to the cult of death. There are others, like that of the Greeks, where even the immortals seem to lead normal lives. In most instances, the two points of view are at odds, and the interplay between them makes history. The conflict between the spiritual and the temporal in Christianity is a case in point. The clash of biases can manifest itself in many more subtle ways. Thus, we can take different attitudes with regard to economic regulation. One position is that regulation is useless because it introduces distortions that, left to themselves, eventually lead to a breakdown of the system. This point of view is powerfully reinforced by the argument that the market mechanism, left to itself, tends toward equilibrium. The opposite point of view is that perfection is not attainable either by the market or by regulation. Markets are too unstable, regulation too rigid. Markets need to be regulated, but regulation cannot be left to itself either. It is in constant need of revision. The fact that no system is perfect is not a valid argument against trying to perfect the system. Take Bretton Woods. 
The fact that it eventually broke down does not alter the fact that it provided the basis for a quarter of a century of prosperity. When it comes to a choice between the two attitudes, mine is clearly in favor of life and the temporary and imperfect structures we can create within it. Although I advocate a comprehensive reform of the financial system, I have no illusions that the new system will be any more flawless or permanent than the preceding ones. On the contrary, I regard the search for permanence and perfection as an illusion. The pitfall in a well-functioning system is that it lulls us into complacency. That is what happened to Bretton Woods, and that is what will happen to the next one if we design it too well. This brings me to the personal problem I have with systemic reform. Systems are operated by bureaucrats, and I have an instinctive aversion to the bureaucratic mentality. In advocating a more regulated international financial system, I seem to be wishing for something that I abhor. The problem is real. The distinctive feature of every bureaucracy is its striving for self-perpetuation. Every system faces the danger that it becomes ossified in the hands of the bureaucracy that administers it. This holds true for Christianity as well as communism. The dead hand of the bureaucracy is difficult to escape. Mao Zedong tried it by instigating the Cultural Revolution and the consequences were disastrous. But the problem is not insurmountable. When bureaucrats are in charge of a market, market action serves to keep the bureaucrats on their toes. Experience shows that central banks are among the most flexible, innovative, and efficient institutions. The reason is that the market provides a criterion by which the results of their actions can be judged. They may come under the influence of false ideologies, just like anybody else, but when a policy does not work, they cannot help but notice it. For instance, the Federal Reserve adopted a monetarist stance in 1979, but abandoned it in August 1982. Similarly, the IMF operated with a rather rigid set of prescriptions in dealing with heavily indebted countries, but gradually it has been forced to abandon a formula that does not work. Central banks are often criticized for following the wrong policies, but the very fact that the failures can be demonstrated provides a potent discipline. Moreover, central banks have been surprisingly innovative in handling crises. The Bank of England invented the lifeboat in 1974, and the Federal Reserve applied it on a worldwide scale in the debt crisis of 1982. Volcker, in particular, proved to be a man who thrives on crises. But the fact that a man like Volcker could be at the helm of a central bank cannot be treated as an accident. In sum, the creation of an international central bank does not constitute a permanent solution. Indeed, the very idea that it constitutes a permanent solution carries with it the seeds of the next crisis. Epilogue The unifying theme of this book is the concept of reflexivity. I have focused on its implications for the social sciences in general and financial markets in particular. I have left other areas largely unexplored. I should like to mention them briefly here, although my thoughts relating to them are not properly developed. They ought to form the subject of another book in the future, but I am afraid I may not have a chance to write it, especially if I remain involved in financial markets. First, the question of values. Economic theory has trained us to take values as given, although the evidence suggests that they are shaped by a reflexive process. Most values can be reduced to economic terms nowadays. The most recent Nobel laureate in economics earned his prize by interpreting politics as an economic process in which the participants seek to maximize their own benefits. 
But that has not always been the case, and even today there are many parts of the world where profit-maximizing behavior takes second place to other motivations. Religion and tradition are less easily amenable to economic analysis than is politics in a materialistic culture. We have great difficulty in understanding a phenomenon like Islamic fundamentalism. At the other end of the scale, a movement that we profess to admire, solidarity, is also alien to our way of thinking. The predominance of economic values in Western and Westernized societies is itself a function of our economic success. Values evolve in reflexive fashion. The fact that economic activity has borne positive results has enhanced the value we put on economic values. The same can be said about scientific method. The triumphs of natural science have raised the status of scientific method to unsustainable heights. Conversely, Various forms of art have played a much bigger role in cultures, not very far removed from our own, just because it was easier to achieve positive results in art than in economic activity. Reflexive processes are bound to lead to excesses, but it is impossible to define what is excessive because in matters of values there is no such thing as normal. Perhaps the best way to approach the subject of values is to start from the position that they are rooted in fantasy rather than reality. As a consequence, every set of values has a flaw in it. We can then ask what are the elements of fantasy in a particular set of values and how the elements of fantasy and reality have interacted. Any other approach would introduce a bias in favor of our own flawed set of values. Values are closely associated with the concept of self, a reflexive concept if ever there was one. What we think has a much greater bearing on what we are than on the world around us. What we are cannot possibly correspond to what we think we are, but there is a two-way interplay between the two concepts. As we make our way in the world, our sense of self evolves. The relationship between what we think we are and what we are in reality is the key to happiness. In other words, it provides the subjective meaning of life. I could readily provide a reflexive interpretation of my own development, but I am reluctant to do so because it would be too revealing, not to say incriminating. It will come as no surprise to the reader when I admit that I have always harbored an exaggerated view of my self-importance. To put it bluntly, I fancied myself as some kind of god or an economic reformer like Keynes, each with his general theory, or even better, a scientist like Einstein. Reflexivity sounds like relativity. My sense of reality was strong enough to make me realize that these expectations were excessive and I kept them hidden as a secret guilt. This was a source of considerable unhappiness through much of my adult life. As I made my way in the world, reality came close enough to my fantasy to allow me to admit my secret, at least to myself. Needless to say, I feel much happier as a result. I have been fortunate enough to be able to act out some of my fantasies. This book in particular fills me with a great sense of accomplishment. Reality falls far short of my expectations, as the reader can readily observe, but I no longer need to harbor a sense of guilt. Writing this book, and especially these lines, exposes me in a way I never dared to expose myself before, but I feel I can afford it. My success in business protects me. I am free to explore my abilities to their limits exactly because I do not know where those limits are. Criticism will help me in this endeavor. The only thing that could hurt me is if my success encouraged me to return to my childhood fantasies of omnipotence. 
but that is not likely to happen as long as I remain engaged in the financial markets because they constantly remind me of my limitations. Given my personality, I have been extremely lucky in my career choice, but of course it was not really a choice, but a reflexive process in the course of which both my career and my sense of self evolved in tandem. I could say a lot more on the subject, but as long as I have a career in business, I have to plead the Fifth Amendment. There is a point beyond which self-revelation can be damaging, and one of the flaws in my character, which I have not fully fathomed, is the urge to reveal myself. Perhaps I was exaggerating a minute ago when I said I am not afraid of exposing myself. I also have some views on what could be called the meaning of life in the objective sense, if it were not a contradiction in terms to use the word objective in this context. I start from the position that every human endeavor is flawed. If we were to discard everything that is flawed, there would be nothing left. We must therefore make the most of what we have. The alternative is to embrace death. The choice is a real one, because death can be embraced in a number of ways. The pursuit of perfection and eternity in all its manifestations is equivalent to choosing the idea of death over the idea of life. If we carry this line of argument to its logical conclusion, the meaning of life consists of the flaws in one's conceptions and what one does about them. Life can be seen as a fertile fallacy. So far, I have spoken mainly in terms of the individual. But the individual does not exist in isolation. His inherently imperfect understanding makes him all the more dependent on the society to which he belongs. The analysis that has led to the concept of reflexivity also throws some light on the relationship between the individual and society. It is a mistake to think that there are two separate entities involved. The relationship is between a part and a whole. We have seen the cognitive difficulties that such a relationship gives rise to. Neither the individual nor society can be defined without reference to the other. Given the structure of our language, it is extremely difficult to recognize the contingent nature of the two entities, and as a matter of historical fact, most discourses on the subject have taken either the whole or the part as their starting point. The choice of the starting point tends to infuse the rest of the discussion with a bias. The famous speech of Agrippa, in which he compares society with an organism, epitomizes one extreme, and Rousseau's social contract, the other. In order to avoid the bias inherent in these extremes, new categories of speech need to be established. An appropriate language is beginning to emerge in the context of computer science and systems analysis, but it will take time to permeate general discourse. Even if we learn to think in terms of reflexive and recursive relations, we are confronted with a substantive choice— should society take a predetermined shape, or should its members be allowed to determine the form of society in which they live? The former kind of society has been described by Karl Popper as closed, the latter as open. I have just come back from China, where the issue is of vital significance. The country has passed through a horrendous period during which the collective terrorized the individual on a massive scale. It is now run by a group of people who have been on the receiving end of the terror. These people have ample reason to be passionately devoted to the cause of individual freedom. But they are up against a long tradition of feudalism, an all-pervasive bureaucracy, and the constraints of Marxist ideology. I was surprised to find an avid interest in the concept of reflexivity. 
As I have noted in the book, reflexivity could also be described as a kind of dialectics, but I have eschewed using the word because of the heavy intellectual baggage it carries. It is exactly these connotations that make the concept so fascinating for the Chinese, because it allows them to modify Marxist ideology without breaking with it. Hegel propounded a dialectic of ideas. Marx turned the idea on its head and espoused dialectic materialism. Now there is a new dialectic that connects the participants' thinking with the events in which they participate. That is, it operates between ideas and material conditions. If Hegel's concept was the thesis and Marxism the antithesis, reflexivity is the synthesis. But there is a fundamental difference between Marxism and the new dialectic. Marx labored under the misapprehension that, in order to be scientific, a theory has to determine the future course of history. The new dialectic is emphatically not deterministic. Since the shape of society cannot be scientifically determined, it must be left to the participants to decide their own form of organization. Since no participant has a monopoly on truth, the best arrangement allows for a critical process in which conflicting views can be freely debated and eventually tested against reality. Democratic elections provide such a forum in politics, and the market mechanism provides one in economics. Neither markets nor elections constitute an objective criterion, only an expression of the prevailing bias. But that is the best available in an imperfect world. Thus, the concept of reflexivity leads directly to the concept of an open society hence its charm in contemporary China. As far as I am concerned, it completes what Hofstadter would have called a recursive loop between my concept of reflexivity, my interest in financial markets, and my devotion to the ideal of an open society. This is Grover Gardner for Wiley Audio. Thank you for listening. This audiobook is a co-production of Fenton Overseas and Audio Scholar. It's based upon the book entitled The Alchemy of Finance, written by George Soros. It is copyrighted in 1987 and 1994 in the name of George Soros and is available in print form from the publisher, John Wiley & Sons, Incorporated.